Everybody, this is Wrong Real. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. But today we're going to be talking about a time of cinemascope, a time of Technicolor versus glorious black and white, a time of giant atomic monsters wreaking havoc and beautiful femme fatales lurking in every shadow, a time where legends like Kurosawa and Fellini were changing film forever, and I'm talking about the year 1954. And before you exhale in exasperation about what this year might represent, here's an idea of the landscape at that time. We had movies by Kurosawa, Fellini, Fritz Lang, Lucina Visconti, Billy Wilder, Luis Buñuel, Samuel Fuller, Vincent Minnelli, David Lean, Nicholas Ray, Douglas Sirk, Ingmar Bergman, Kenneth Anger, Joseph Almankowicz, Roberto Larcellini. And then you have people who did two movies, William Wellman, Anthony Mann, Don Siegel, George Cukor, Otto Preminger, Alfred Hitchcock. And then you have people who did three. Kenji Mitsuguchi, Robert Aldrich, Andre de Toth, and Michael Cartese. So I think it's fair to say this is a very rich year. It's a very rich vein. And who better to join me on this journey than two familiar faces from the past, Jeremy Workman and Chico Lee. But guys, welcome back to Wrong Reel. It's been too long. Woo! We're back. Yeah. Another year. Absolutely. Uh, you, you, you mentioned quite quite a bit there. What what was the other Q-Core movie? I mean, I just obviously... Star is born. Right. What was the other uh, I one? I think It Should Happen to You. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. The The... the Judy Holiday movie. Yeah, I, I love Judy Holiday. I've actually not seen it. Should I, happen to you. I, I have. It's not so good. It gotcha. was. Uh, she did Born Yesterday the year before, and, and she did Adam's Rip with them. Yeah, and then they quickly sort of tried to you know max her out and throw in another movie, and that was It Should Happen to You, and that's the one where where she hires a billboard and puts herself up on up at Columbus Circle in New York. Oh, City. I have seen that. Yeah, I actually I saw that on like Turner Classic. Yeah, movies. and it's not that great. It's not that but great. it's a 1954. Movie. Yeah, okay. I actually have seen that. Yes. Well, before we start digging into all these flicks, let's just pause and reintroduce everybody because Chico, you gave me some really very good news before we started recording. You've got a, a big announcement to make. Yes. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if it made it onto the the last podcast when we talked about uh, 1994. I had mentioned that I was going to be doing a, a new podcast. And it is it is coming out at the end of May on the Loudspeakers Network, uh, Sword and Scandal, and it will be a look at the history of humanity through the lens of world cinema. So I'll be starting with caveman movies, and then moving into like uh, Bible movies, and then ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, doing the whole history of humanity, but just through the lens of uh, world cinema. And there's actually a couple of a couple of movies from this year 
that uh, from 54 that uh, might get featured at some point in the podcast. And there are a bunch that I've watched but that will not get featured. where do you draw the line featured. on like, history versus legend and myth? Because for some people, those myths and legends were history. Well, that's why I'm including us. Uh, the Bible was considered... Yeah, we've had this conversation. Like, yeah. Greek mythology, is that history or legend? Well, Bible, so, is that So many this? people thought that, that, that Greek mythology... So I will be showing Jason and the Argonauts... I will be talking about Jason and the Argonauts, but I won't be talking about 1 million B.C. You know, uh, like, uh, you know, so many people grew up thinking that, you know, in, you know, for generations in Greece or in Greek, you know, uh, descended, you know, countries because, you know, the Greek Empire, you know, under Alexander spread all over the world, you know, thought that was history. Um, There is a there's a movie from uh, 51, David and Bathsheba with Gregory Peck. Then in the opening of the movie, they're like, this is history. It really happened. And we know that because it was in the Bible. Like they're presenting that just, you know, literally uh, 60, 70 years ago. They thought that, you know, the Bible was history. And another thing is that you have all these similarities in the myths that you can tell that that's another reason to discuss them, not as so much as if that, that they're historically accurate, but that they actually, you know, yeah, he changed his sex. Is that so different than Zeus turning into a swan to seduce a woman? Um, you, you know, that there, there are so many similarities. Like every single culture has a flood uh, story and there were these major floods at the end of the last and ice age. virgin mothers and things like that. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, I mean, they'll be sort of marked as not, a, you know, as legend or as myths, but, um, and I'm not going to go crazy with it, but yeah, it does seem weird to do this and to not have some of the Bible movies. Like if you suggest to my dad the Trojan War did not happen, he will like fight you on it. He's like, it's, <laughs> it's just, I'm like, I, admittedly, there was probably some loose foundation, but it's not like Achilles and Ajax and Menelaus and all right, these guys sure. and were running around doing their thing. Anyway, so my dad's a huge fan of the Trojan War. When does this go live, Chico? Uh, at, the, at the end of May. Wow. And this yes. is actually, I'm, because I've recorded so many episodes over the last couple of days, not going to go up for a couple of weeks, so they will coincide and dovetail beautifully. Sword Sword and scandals. Sword and scandal. Sword and scandal. One sword, one scandal. Sword and scandal. Well, Mr. Workman, last time we had you on, you were talking about your your film, The World Before Your Feet, and it seems like you went on a whirlwind world tour promoting the film all over the place. Bring us up to speed. What's Uh, going on? Yeah, it had this. It's still in theaters. What do you think of that? That's a sounds like a nice healthy run. Like what, yeah, five yeah. Months? It's been in theaters for now a uh, hundred and forty, hundred and fifty days. Um, so for the last hundred fifty days, it's played in a movie theater um, somewhere in the U.S. or Has Canada. Matt I think Green I, lost all anonymity at this point. Yeah, I mean Matt Green, the the subject of the documentary, he's he he is being recognized on streets in New York City. I mean, there were some days. I think after about 125 days, there were some days where we weren't in theaters, but then we came back in. We're back in a theater in New York City. We're right now, I mean, we're, you know, seven months out or something. I don't even know. Six months. And uh, we're in several theaters in Canada right now. But all your listeners can find it on streaming, rental, iTunes, DVD. The DVD's out. I brought you one. Beautiful. Excellent. And um, it's been really fun. And... um, it's been been a been a great run, so hope if anyone you know has, has a chance to see it, you know, please do the world before your feet. And there were several people who came to from, me from the wrong real community. Yes, <laughs> from the wrong wow. real community. I would be at theaters, um, a cup specifically in Los Angeles. It opened in at the New Art in Los Angeles, and a number of wrong real people came up to me. 
Um, in Florida, wrong real people came up to me. Who did uh, you, who, you meet in Florida? Uh, just people who were like, I've heard you on the oh, wrong Oh, cool. Reel. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. What, that, so, that's, and, what, that's when you know things are flowing the way they're supposed to. Yeah, and there was a couple reviews that, that, that people wrote that also mentioned, one or two mentioned wrong real. So it seemed like it was, the wrong real was kind of like, had been seeped into that world a little bit. We got, we got to be baked into your pie. Yeah, a yeah, it was bit. cool. It's cool. So that's why I'm back. You well, know, that, that, that puts a huge smile on my face when I see friends that I've collaborated with, either like recording together or working together. I mean, like to, like recently, like we see like Bill Tech and Bill Scurry and um, uh, Rob Cotto making documentaries together. I'm like, all right, well, they've all been around real together, and like it's just cool, just helping everybody make these connections. So yes. we're, we're, we're the uh, we're the, we're the lube and the sexual activity. I mean, yeah. I, I, just to repeat the exact same thing. I mean, literally was in the lobby in movie theaters, and somebody would come up to me and say, "I heard." you on the wrong reel uh, well that, that that makes my heart feel yes. very full yes excellent well 1954 there's a lot of different ways that we can crack this nut we got great big kick-ass westerns we got awesome foreign films i mean we, we like japan it's gonna be a, a chapter totally unto itself but i think maybe the best place to start chico leo what is your favorite movie from 1954 um, you know, I, I, I've actually been thinking about that, and I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, I think, the, I think it's going to be the same answer as a lot of other people. I mean, it's, you know, it comes down to either Rear Window or Seven Samurai. Those are good ones. Um, you know, I think those are game-changing movies. Well, Seven Samurai is definitely a game-changer. I don't know that Rear Window is necessarily a game-changing movie. it was. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, a 15 out of 10. I mean, it's like, it's a perfect piece of cinema. Mm. Um, it's it's Hitchcock firing on all cylinder. You know, I mean the the camera work, the acting, the soundtrack, the script, the the use of of uh, what is it non diegetic or diegetic sound? Because like in Rear Window, you only hear what he hears. There's very little actual soundtrack in it. Like you just hear, and so the the sound design and 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 just the. Uh, the, the the way the sound editing and stuff in there is is literally you know it's like Star Wars level you know like uh, that sort of you know that kind of game changer and it's just really uh, it's just a great movie it's two hours long and I've probably seen it like 10 or 12 times in my life and I've never felt like I was sitting there for two hours when I rewatched The Star is Born I felt like I was sitting there for yeah. three That's hours a long one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like A Star is Born quite yeah. a bit but goddamn, you feel the length but with Rear Window it's just like eating a big old slice of cake I mean it's just it's so enjoyable I think it's a masterclass on what you can do with a soundstage in terms of total artifice. It feeling kind of sort of like a facsimile reality, but I love how there's nothing authentic about it whatsoever. It's all just from the imagination of the filmmaker with marvelous performances. I, I also think it, you know, it's so awesome how it sort of plays with just narrative where like you'll see little people and their story will progress over it and they're not the main focus like the of the movie. Reds. The guy's yeah, tired like of the fucking his wife. Yeah, the newlyweds or the dancer and then like at the end her, her husband so comes back from the it's like, it's like it follows the world of this murder, but yet there's all this sort of life going on and all the yeah, Miss all Lonely the, Heart. It's I mean, so good. Yeah. There's also, I have to say, I mean, the first time I saw it, you know, um, I was I was a kid and I saw it in a revival theater, but I this notion of like him losing himself looking out the window, the main character, James Stewart's broken his leg and so he has nothing to do. It's a very hot... Oh, that's another thing about the movie. 
it's one of the few movies that communicates heat, like how hot it is. I think Body Heat does that really well. I think Do the, Do right, the right Thing, thing. does that really cool well. Hand, cool Hand but, Cool Hand But sure. Rear Window really, like, a, a hot New York summer, and this is before 54. It's before, there, were, there were air conditioners in movie theaters, but not in people's houses. The movie wouldn't work if people had AC, because he's looking in yeah, all the open. Yeah, their windows oh, closed. Oh, yeah. their windows open. Yeah. But, and... and, and um, yeah, people are sleeping on the uh, Right, on the, on the, the fire escape. Yeah, exactly. Told me yeah. really happened like the yeah, people yeah, slept yeah. on their fire escapes but no but there there was this this notion of like that he's losing himself and there's these other people coming in being like read a book you know experience life and i found it similar to the way we are now with our phones and twitter and facebook and just general you know i'll wake up in the middle of the night and if i don't fall back asleep in five minutes like i'll look at twitter that's the you worst know? thing you could do no yeah. i know but it's You're sort of similar when he there's scenes in the movie where he wakes up in the middle of the night and looks out the window and sort of sees lars thorwald doing something or here's and, a scream right and 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 but, so i thought there was a similarity in like this weird unhealthiness and yet you're there, there's also a weird like sick pursuit of knowledge with both like when you're going on the internet it's theoretically you're looking for some it's voyeurism yeah. yes but it, it's right. also like lots of people have written about how it's a you know it's right. a metaphor for, for cinema, cinema of course of course and it provided the blueprint for yeah. uh brian de palma's entire career I would, <laughs> uh, I would and he'd be the first to admit that oh yeah yeah it's pretty much i mean i think it is safe to say it's universally uh, i mean we're talking about 1954 as this incredible year is it universally Understood to be the the greatest movie of 1954. I mean, I mean, I, Seven Samurai, I mean like that's. I mean, like it's between those two. I, that's why. I, that's what I would argue. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, James would. I mean, I mean, there, 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 there's a lot of contention. I mean, La Strada is a wonderful movie. La Strada is a wonderful movie. Is my mother's favorite movie of all mm. time. But um, I, I mean, I feel like certainly Seven Samurai has has influenced more movies and 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 there's some tropes in it that 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 are so common now. Yeah, um, one thing I was gonna gonna add was I don't think Rear Window is Hitchcock's greatest movie. No, it's probably that, Vertigo. It's either Vertigo or Psycho. Right. So it's very possible that Rear Window is his third greatest movie. Right. So, so it's which hard film of his have you watched the most number of times? That's, I mean, Hitchcock. I, yeah, Psycho. Probably like a Vertigo lot of people for me. Will, they'll pick a movie that they think is as most respectable as the number one, but there's another one that's seen the most. I feel like uh, Vertigo North by Northwest or, might be one I've seen the most, and it's certainly not his best, but it's one of the most. So. Yeah, he's got like I think he's got like anywhere from five to ten that are fucking right. Yeah, crack, so crack cocaine of, about, on cinema. Totally. Right. So if you're if you're gonna talk about like the greatest movie of the year and the, and it's Hitchcock and it's not even his top one. Right. Quick question: What one best picture? Okay, that's a good I don't, question. I don't was it on the waterfront? It was on the waterfront. How much you waste? You weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. 
You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. On the waterfront, that's one a, I best think on the waterfront cleaned up. I think yeah, didn't cleaned that, up. That, Even Marie Saint one, won. Yeah, the script one. Brando won. Brando won. Which I mean, I, I mean, we're already all over the place. Like, are we going to actually <laughs> jump into on the waterfront? Like, well, did we unless, already finish? But I feel like Jeremy's know? got a little bit more to say on Rear Window. Um, you know, only uh, not really. I don't. I mean, I think it's awesome. I think I agree with Chico that. I prefer Seven Samurai. So if we're talking about the greatest movie of 1954, this colossal year, Seven Samurai. Yeah, and and I actually and I would prefer, I prefer both of them too on the waterfront. I do think on the waterfront is great. I mean, I think I do think there's an asterisk on it with its you know with with the background of the movie. Um, regarding Ilya Kazan and you know him being a rat and then him <laughs> making a movie trying yes. to justify being a rat. Yes, I would never. I don't believe in cancel culture. I I think that R. Kelly and Michael Jackson that their music should still be on Spotify. I didn't think they should take the Cosby Show off the air. I would never ever. What about say, Song of the South? Um, I, I I think it's outrageous that they're not including Song of the South on, or Disney at least Plus. the. All right, I think Song of the South specifically they should include the animation if not the. Uh, the sort of framing device of it being this plantation, but I think they should actually include I mean, all if the. If trying for the will the, doesn't get canceled, then nothing should get canceled. Right, but, it, right. Well, no, but wait a second. Kazan didn't write it. But Schulberg, Bud Schulberg wrote it. Bud Schul- no, but Bud Schulberg wrote it after um, Arthur Miller left after doing a. Uh, a first draft because he was so disgusted okay. with Ilya Kazan. But Schulberg, I should mention, also wrote like "What Makes Sammy Run." He wrote uh, "The Harder They Fall." I mean, Bud Schulberg he, is a monster, monster. writer, yeah, and he, he also yeah. wrote "A Face in the Crowd," which is one of uh, Kazan's best films. So, yeah, I mean, and he was the son of a studio head. He knew that world. But if you ever want to get a great read about just the cunning and the viciousness it takes to succeed in Hollywood, "What Makes Sammy Run" should be read by every late teen or early twenty something who's about to t- take his first steps or her That's first true. steps into the film biz it's deliriously entertaining but a wonderful cautionary tale they also want to try to make that into a movie you know I, and they'll never they'll never get it right I mean, Ben Stiller was behind it for years yeah, trying to make exactly. it happen Kazan exactly. is wildly talented I mean there is no doubt I I myself like in terms of the 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 you know I actually prefer um Streetcar Named Desire I mean there's an argument to be made that it's too theatrical like he had directed the play it feels stagey but and, I, yeah, you know, I come on but but well I mean I actually I mean, it's, I, Brando's it's in performance the the wrong reels yeah. a clip from yeah, no, I know Brando's performance in 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 uh, in Street Crime Desire is my single favorite like film performance by a man, by an actor like um, and 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 I actually find Brando to be his career to be way uneven so he's not That's even putting in, it very kindly he's yeah. not even in like my top twenty of actors but he has my single favorite performance I just want to point out my favorite actor is Paul Newman and he did have his debut this year. I'll look, look, try look, look, to don't don't jump to shark. Too yeah, yeah, yeah. But I the, will on, try on to also periodically drop in some big picture, you know, themes of this year. And I think, um, 
you know, since we're mentioning on the waterfront, um, you know, this whole the method thing, which Kazan was a part absolutely. of, absolutely was really important in this year, and it was sort of the first introduction of of method actors, especially with Carl Malden, yeah, DJ especially Cobb. with Marlon Brando becoming yeah. this tiger, th- this yeah. this huge movie star, and then and winning the Oscars. So that was sort of a big significant factor for 1954 where it brought in this kind of new new kind of acting. A, a, a New York sensibility. Yeah. I, just, I mean, On the Waterfront is extraordinary. It has a murderer's row of these supporting method actors. I mean, it has Carl Malden. Carl Malden. You know, Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb. Rod Friendly, Steiger. Rod Steiger. Yeah. Um, and, and Marlon Brando all in the same movie and then sort of these great old character actors playing like the, uh, the dock workers and Eva Marie Saint. I, I would also point out in Scorsese, has admitted this he took the entire aesthetic of um on the waterfront and that's what raging bull is yeah. other than the 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 actual boxing scenes raging bull is almost like a, like he took like there's a scene where they're You're talking talking. glorious black and white this is it's like the whole thing shot through like mist and fog and it's so atmospheric and so beautiful I'm and not, what the I, working class people really an incredibly incredible but, it was you know boris kaufman who shot it the cinematographer one of the greats yeah. who's one of the greats and came, came from you know yeah. had his russian tradition and uh you know, has ties ties to Mikhail Kaufman, who was another great shooter. So you know, it's pretty pretty major. I think it's movie. one of the quintessential New York movies. I mean, there are a lot on that list from like you know, Sweet Smell Success through Mean Streets or whatever. But if you're talking about the great movies that have the the smell, especially as an outsider who's moved to New York and made it his home, there are certain movies that made me fascinated with the city in the first place. And on the waterfronts on that list. You know, it's interesting that you say that because the two, the, you know, the uh, Rear Window is also a quintessential New York movie, yeah. but they're it's like shot two different. <laughs> No, but no, yeah. no, but not just. But it's also they're two such different New Yorks. It's like literally uh, on the waterfront is Gotham, and um, you know, rear window is Metropolis, and you know, they're both the, the, the flip side. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> the, the, the flip sides of 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 New York City. Um, and also, we- just one more thing about rear window. You know, it all. You know, 1954 is this. You know, also the apex of the studio system as well. I mean, we also well, have that going on. Forty six, but this is the studio system is alive and well. Yeah, the studio system is alive and well. Right, yeah. exactly. So it's that ten year stretch or fifteen I year feel stretch. Like it's starting to fall exactly. apart. It's starting to fall apart in nineteen fifty four. Yeah. So Rear Window sort of represents sort of that like kind of last you know studio polish. There's a number of very important nineteen fifty four movies that are very big, kind of those. Splashy, Kane Mutiny, Sabrina, Zenith Barefoot, Contessa, right? These very kind of polished studio vehicles. So the studio system is also changing at this time, right in the middle of 1950s. And this is the year where they had been introduced the previous year, but suddenly you have a million movies in CinemaScope, which was a brand new innovation because they recognize there's a changing of the, the lay of the land. We have to compete what can we do that's new? Like, we're going to have biblical epics, we're going to have westerns, we're going to have musicals, whether it's Seven Brides and Seven Brothers or whatever the case might be, CinemaScope was exploding yeah. in 54. Yeah, it also came in a lot of different varieties. Like, it wasn't just CinemaScope. It was like VistaVision. Absolutely. And, you know, all these different variations. color and Warner Color yeah, and all these exactly. new formats. And yeah. it would be like, yeah, exactly. It would be the different studios had their own di- different v- variations. Absolutely. Of just like we're having the platform wars today. I, I mean, I remember... Uh, I was one of the films uh, I was looking at. There was a review of it, and literally in the first paragraph, they talked about its, you know, its how it was shot, which in what format, and well, it was how something do you, how you, do you would feel never do yeah. today. Nobody would care what you know. Oh my God, it's in this kind of you know. 
70 millimeter method. You know, now the method is not really interesting, but it was back in 1954. I guess like when like Soderbergh shoots something on an iPhone, people will call attention to that. Okay, that's different. I mean, and again, this is another big theme of 1954, which is TV, it has like hit, you know, it's hit America like a Bomb. Right, and, so you and this, this live dramatic television is so cool. Like you would have like these brilliant writers and again playwrights who are doing these live recordings of shows, and it's such a lost art form in a lot of ways. But you could you could get why Hollywood suddenly realized, oh shit, this is a, a, a legitimate rival. Well, and I think what happened was that people were staying home. People used to go to the movies four, five, six nights a week. Again, and stay you know you had a hours, right? You yeah. they had double features. You had the newsreels. You I mean you got everything, all your information in the movies and your entertainment and now you could suddenly get that at home and i think it's a similar thing they're dealing with now with streaming and and now people have these you know essentially movie theaters in every home because yes a 55 inch screen tv is not like a 55 foot you know uh movie screen but people are saying if you're six (laughs) six seven feet away from it it kind of is i mean what whatever fills your vision fills your vision and like i get front row center just to avoid uh people's phones when i go to the theater so it's for me all i see is the screen but if i sit close to my tv i can also feel i can have all my vision be filled as well (laughs) or if i hold my ipad right in front of my face so for me it's just all about do i have peripheral vision around the screen or not but chico that's a key point here which is and this is a a, a, you sort of said it uh, almost as an aside but there is a similarity between now and 1954 in terms of, you know, disruptive, you know, exhibition where they're streaming now and movies are coming in all directions. So the movie theaters are figuring out all these different ways about spectacle and monsters and science fiction, which was also going on in 1954, as we're going to see with a lot of these movies. Right. But it is interesting that, you know, if you went to see uh, Avengers Endgame, you had the choice of seeing it or any of the Marvel movies normally or in 3D, or in IMAX, or in IMAX 3D. Like, well, like you had literally like four different viewing choices nowadays. That it, you know, in a way that you just didn't uh, before. Well, there are some theaters that wouldn't show CinemaScope and would just crop it and chop off the sides. Yeah, like right. Seven Brides and Seven Brothers was released in a bunch of different formats, so it wasn't like automatically. I mean, and also I'm I'm terrible when it comes to like lenses and projection and that sort of thing. But essentially, it seems like CinemaScope was like an anamorphic lens that would allow you to like very quickly upgrade. Your theater to this new to this new experience and then obviously it kind of phased out by like the 60s but I, there's something about when you see in cinemascope in technical at the beginning it makes you just feel high but on the, on the other hand going back to on the waterfront this is the heyday of black and white cinema because think about it, 10 years later black and white was basically dying a very painful death in cinema you would get the occasional exception like seconds or something like that but it was going the way of the dodo well, spe- speaking sure. of frankenheimer I'm, I'm pretty sure the train by frankenheimer is the last sort of big budget black and white movie and that's mm. that's in the mid 60s yeah. so you're you're definitely talking he made a bunch of great black and white movies throughout the 60s but um that 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 yeah you're right i mean black and white is 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 effectively gone within like you know 12 12 years from now you oh. know just gone like in 54 you have westerns and some are like full frame square black and white right 
you know, and you also have like the big budget, you know, Technicolor ones. Well, you have, to, and they've like been to the river. No, I'm sorry. They, so the Far Country, I mean, by Anthony Mann. Far Country by shot Anthony Mann. in the two by one aspect ratio, which is actually a really common format now today in TV, where it's shot in two by one. But it's such a rare format. But back then, for whatever reason, there were a lot of directors who were really reluctant to try to fill that like 2.55 to one, seven brides and seven brothers yeah. frame. So the two by one you see a lot, like with like, um, uh, Vera Cruz, another Anthony oh, Mann, stuff like that. Yeah, Vera Cruz. But yeah, but he, he shot a yeah. ton in two by one. So, so that's interesting because, like, with Anthony Mann, you know, he makes a movie in 1954, and it's far country, and it's this big widescreen, you know, color movie. With and he had the Glenn Miller story, right? Oh, same year, <laughs> same year, Anthony oh, Mann. Wow. Yeah. Whereas the the grittier westerns that he had done in the earlier 50s like Winchester 73 they're not technical now now one question I so my understanding also is that the whole thing was that the theaters didn't have to go through a huge rigmarole to show these movies but the camera was different right like you had to use this giant camera because the robe which is the year previous yeah that's the first um, big one that's the first one it looks like it's shot by a caveman in the sense that like the camera you know will pan and swivel but it barely moves there's none of like all of the unbelievably elegant like camera work that they've super clunky developed for like 30 40 years you know in in hollywood it you know suddenly is not there in the robe. The takes are very long, and um, and 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 I, I was actually kind of astonished in looking how just a year later in '54 a lot of these movies didn't have that. Now that also could be you've got George Cukor doing, you know, um, Star, Star is Born. Born. He's obviously, uh, you know, a master filmmaker. I, I don't even remember who directed tw- uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but that was another cinemascope. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Richard Fleischer? Yeah, yes. exactly. Richard yeah. Fleischer, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that just in like a year, they 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 figured out how to e- either either they made enough technical innovations that the camera could mo- you know could move better or they um, because I did notice or you can just fight it like Fritz Lang said it's only good for shooting funerals and snakes and you watch his movie uh, what is the Fritz hum- Lang uh, Human Desire Human Desire it's super old school in approach yeah. it's a cool it's a cool de- train de- down noir. and dirty noir yeah but he definitely is still clinging to the forties a bit yeah totally it feels like an, a forties noir yeah you know but um, yeah I mean there was all these different te- Technologies, so technology is changing in the fifties. You have television coming in. You have all this sort of political upheaval that I think is also affecting Hollywood all this. Ten, the blacklist, the Hollywood Ten, yeah. the you know communism, which is what this. we were talking about with yeah, on the waterfront. Just, exactly. So just so, I mean, there's a whole yeah. like Kazan name names, and it's like to tell or not to tell is the question of the day. Like Sterling Hayden, who's in a lot of these movies from fifty four, he also named names. A lot of people did. It's like it's true. Do you go to work and name names, or do you not name names? And because a lot of these guys, like they would go. To to like a communist gathering like in 1939 in college and then like 10 years later like have you now ever been a member of the communist party and they say no and say well we know you're at this meeting give us five names and we'll let you go right but the problem there is they also knew and the government knew that like the people in in the 20s and 30s who went to these meetings that they didn't actually know how bad Stalin was and how bad at, like they didn't you, you know I think that that that, the, that these people were innocent like and it's like Kazan knew that these people whose names he named that they were going to get their careers were going to get destroyed and and he knew that they didn't do anything wrong like he knew that they weren't agents of Stalin and like you, you know and yet he still did it anyway and um, there are a number of super talented people 
to you know like it's different so how did you feel when he got his lifetime achievement award because it seemed like some people like scorsese were all about praising kazan's career but there were other people like nick jim carrey oh yeah there nick were people that refused to, yeah. to but when, I, when i saw that at the time i was thinking you know what jim carrey you were not alive at that time and until you've walked a mile in another man's shoes like how dare you judge and i feel like if you were alive in the early 50s i feel like those people have the right to judge or not to judge nick nolte was alive and he was in the right. front row and he did not clap did not, very like he literally sat there but I remember when clap. Jim Carrey did it. I was like, "You were such a but." Poser. I, but wait a second. I remember I grew up in L.A. and I I have two Kazan things with that. One is one time I was I was like at some like L.A. establishment like Canner's Deli or something like that, Love and Canter's. an old Jew came Fairfax up to baby. me, an old an old guy from the Hollywood studio system, and he told me I looked like Kazan. This was you know ten years, fifteen years ago. But the other point, the bigger point, was that. Even into the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there were still like people really sort of angry. Oh, about, hell yeah. No, I mean, this is, this is, even though it seems like it's old history, it's like there's a lot of sort of still open wounds with this. Well, so you think about how many people, like a, one, a great movie that I love is uh, The Front, where you show like the lengths that writers would have to go to in order to stay functional. And they would find some schmuck who's willing to pretend to be them to go to their meetings and like basically take credit for the work for a piece of the action and just how many writers were forced to kind of work behind the scenes until like late 50s obviously like when like Gore Vidal and some other writers really started getting hired again but it really took Kirk Douglas to help in the blacklist so it lasted like 10 years so I mean yeah one of the things I cling to most desperately is freedom of thought freedom of expression freedom to have your own belief system and if someone's a communist more power to them. Like it's your job to beat them with a superior idea. So taking away someone's livelihood due to their political ideology, I think, is just a, a sin worse than. Well, that's imagine. that's why I have less of a problem with with his like with uh, on the waterfront winning best picture than I do with Ilya Kazan getting like I don't he didn't need the lifetime achievement award like I I don't he had his accolades yeah like he 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 had accolades that he deserved you know like but he also got to have a career that that he caused a lot of people not to he I mean he he was one of like he he dated Marilyn Monroe like you know what I mean like he got she's to, another yeah. creature of 1954 right <laughs> but what I'm saying is it's like you river know, of no return yeah she not a good one she um she's hot as balls in it though wait, she's uh, hot as balls wait in isn't it. Uh, yes. isn't isn't How to Marry a Millionaire 54 also? Because that's a CinemaScope uh, a, movie. Yeah. She, has a, she has another one in 54, but I'll she's have to look this, it up. She's in um, River of No Return, which is With, Robert it, Mitchum yeah, movie. Yeah, no, I saw that projected, actually, <laughs> yeah. like, projected in 16 millimeter. I saw it projected in 16 millimeter. It's another, it's, like, CinemaScope Yes, movie, but yeah. it's not. A, yeah, yeah. I, I saw it's, it projected it's, it's pretty, in 16. It's, she had, it's, a, it's an Otto Preminger movie. Yeah, she had the River of No Return as well as There's No Business Like Show Business. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. and, I, all right, so that's one of the few movies that I've ever seen that I actually burst out laughing in the theaters in the final number or whatever. Wow. But there are some really good numbers in There's No Business Like Show Business, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty thin musical where it's just, you know, the numbers themselves are good, but the, you know, the, the, the overarching story is like forgettable power. Well, while we're on the topic of Marilyn Monroe, where do y'all stand on her as an icon, her legacy, as a performer, as an actress, as a comedian? Because this is when she is like, what, like a, a year after maybe her images first appeared in Playboy. She's about to become one of the biggest icons in the history of showbiz that the world has ever known. But she's right on the 
cusp. She hasn't really yeah, fully popped I mean, popped this, yet. this is not Marilyn Monroe's year at all. This is Grace Kelly's year. Yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah. you know, Marilyn Monroe is sort of like in the smaller she, movies. She's and, on the right. But she had done yeah, like Gentlemen she, Before Blondes the year before fine, and stuff fine. like that. Like she was, I, mean, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, like, but the, the, the a lot of this stuff is very light compared to like, you know, she Marilyn Monroe has like two or three great movie performances and I don't I don't actually count the uh the one with the you know with the train with the skirt seven year edge. I don't count the She's seven year edge though. she I don't know but the, I, yeah I, I agree with Jeremy it's later 50s yeah. it's you like know, some like it hot cer- certainly yeah. some like That's it hot one, is yeah. all is another game changing movie where she's extraordinary in it um, although apparently they had to like bend over backwards the stories of them. You she know. was crazy. Yes. But what I like on River Never Turn is seeing how you've got this beautiful, rustic, cinemascope movie where every single color in the movie is brown and gray or green. It's all the color of nature. And then you have this showgirl like dressed in like yeah. red and yeah. black with the platinum hair. And she just sticks out yeah. like a beacon of light it kind of reminds you what like a, a function of cinema you know right. which is like, like there was no woman that, who went that, out west that yeah. looked like that like get the right. smoke show and so, put it up on screen yeah. and you know and people will buy tickets all right wait 100%. i just i just want to say so one interesting thing about 54 you have seven brides for seven brothers you have river of no return you have johnny guitar they all are all have this theme of involving there there's 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 very weird gender stuff but wait 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 i want to get back i want to get back to 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 the to this other thing and i want to just point out in rear window there's a whole minor plot point about the fact that grace kelly is spending the night in james stewart's apartment and like the cop could arrest them for that like like literally that's that's an arrestable crime in 1954 in new york it's just 1950s you know america okay wait going back to johnny guitar though Play it again, my Johnny. Maybe you're cold, but you're so warm inside. I was always a fool for my Johnny. Johnny Guitar Play it again Johnny Guitar What if you go What if you stay I love you I mean you Johnny Guitar I feel like the the key thing to talk about is the McCarthyism not the not the you know the fact that it's Well I was going to say there's interesting gender stuff going yeah. on yeah. but jo- there is but you can like, say that for a lot of Joan Crawford movies I mean Joan Crawford's playing a badass woman in a, a male dominated environment Right it's the only western that I know of where the final gunfight is between two women yes. Literally I can't name another yeah. one well, it's, it's it's breaking new ground 100% it's why yeah. it's beloved and cherished to this very day So yeah that Johnny Guitar is a big one for 50 
54. Nick yeah. Ray. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, got the t- it's got the Technicolor. One exception to your thing about women not participating in the final scenes of, uh, of shootouts in The Bounty Hunter, the Andre Tatoff film, you've actually got Marie Windsor participating as one of the two uh, gunmen in the final battles. Right, and but this is, this is woman versus woman yeah, in Yeah, but this is Johnny woman Guitar. versus man. But Marie Windsor is obviously one of the great femme fatales of the, of the 50s. But right. Here she's in a Western, and she is participating, and she turns out to be the main villain, so... So that's also 54? That's also 54. Andre de Toth did a couple movies. He did three movies that year. The big one for me is Crime Wave, but, yeah. uh, but he did two westerns. He did The Bounty Hunter and he did uh, Riding Shotgun, both so, with Randolph Scott. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a nut about like, you know, B, mostly B noir, not like B sci fi, but B noir, B crime films. And, and B westerns. Yeah, yeah, B westerns too. And, um, 54 was also a really great year for that as I mean, well. The two big ones for me are Human Desire and Crime Wave, but you have like Naked Alibi. Oh, you got you, Suddenly. You've got, a, you've got a lot of Suddenly cool... is really great. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know, whatever. I mean, like, do we consider that a noir? Because that's a really interesting movie because it got pulled from no, the Film noir is a mood as yeah. opposed to a genre. And a crime film can be a crime film without being film noir. So the, the distinctions, I feel like, are open to subjective point of view. But for me, film noir has to have great shadow play it has to have strong uh, film noir uh, film, film fatales it has to have a feeling where no matter what you do fate's going to stick out right, its foot right. and trip you up like the same detour so that, that doesn't apply none of those things actually apply to suddenly so no there's there's great b noirs in the, in 54 including pushover which is uh kim novak's first movie and it's great uh drive a crooked road which is mickey rooney who plays like a guy who's um uh, who's the driver of, of a bank robbery. Um, there's uh, two Don Siegel movies. There's Riot in, in Cell, Cell Block, Block 11. 11. Yep. Um, and there's also, an, uh, you mentioned Rogue Cop. That's not Don Siegel, but there was a, there's another Don Siegel movie that year. Um, I think, it, I mean, in 54, you also still have those Hollywood rules that if you commit a crime, you have to pay. Like yeah, the, every code, single, the code is in effect. The code, like in, in, in Johnny Guitar, Every one of those guys who gets accused of, of uh, robbing the stagecoach that they then, which they didn't do, they then robbed the bank. All four of them have to die before the end of the movie, and they do. Um, like it's an interesting thing. Like it's you're still you're you're still bound by this idea, and that's one of the other reasons why they can't actually openly say that Joan Crawford was. They have to keep hinting that that um, what's her Vienna was was a prostitute because if they say she was, then she has to die. I mean, you don't really over. start seeing it until the late sixties. Right, it, it takes a good long while when you start. To, like, the fact that like Faye Dunaway plays a whore in 1971 in the movie Doc, like that, even then, it's still pretty well, shocking. Clue, clue. For, for, also, yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, I mean, 1954 is still the era of White Christmas, a Michael Curtis yeah. film, and Michael right. Curtis, White Christmas is as wholesome kind of 50s Americana like vintage as you can get and that was mainstream entertainment and it took a while for people to be ready for the, for the rough stuff and I, I love the rough stuff but we just it was, it's gonna take a long time to get yeah, there but, but it was in the under it was in the undercurrent and the underbelly yeah. and a lot of the B movies did have that absolutely um, the other Don Siegel's Private Hell 36 Beautiful. which is an Ida Lupino movie that I think she also produced. Yeah, she was producing and directing a so, helmet. She didn't yeah. direct one in 54, but she was an active filmmaker and at so, that time. Yeah, so there's a, like a number of like kind of cool, smaller crime movies that were coming out. Also cooler, smaller noirs. I mean, sorry, westerns. Um, Silver Load being... Hell yeah, being, Alan Dwan. You know, that's a, another... Scors- Scorsese's That's another McCarthyism... Story. Where you see the entire town turning yeah. on this guy and judging him when he hasn't done shit. 
So, you know, like other years that we, the three of us, have done, there's all these kind of cool sort of cross-currents going on. You have the big studio movies. You have the small noirs. You have foreign films. Right, the foreign thing, I mean, I I think I mean, you have a lot going on. I think, like, if you go to previous decades or even previous years, I mean... The, the part of it is also so everything is you know before World War Two so obviously there aren't any foreign films getting made or very few during World War Two because Europe and Je- and Japan are are and China like the whole world is at war. But this is the turning point for here, foreign film distribution in America. Yeah, right, it's the it's first starting time. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're starting to put things back together. I mean, you know, they they had a, they had two atomic bombs dropped on them. You know, in 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 Japan, like I can't imagine Toho was out there making like sixteen movies a year. Well, they like, made after. propaganda films, and you see guys like Kurosawa. I was like working throughout the war, but while we're on the subject of Japan, let's just dive into Japan because for me, you've got so it's many like good ones. It's like the greatest year but of Japanese cinema. The fact that you have Mitsuguchi making three yeah. movies, you got Kurosawa making Seven Samurai, you've got fucking Godzilla, Godzilla coming out. You have Godzilla, you've, Seven Samurai, and Sancho You got the Musashi Miyamoto coming out, yeah. the samurai film, and then it's just... For Japan, this is when Japan launches itself onto the world stage. And I think all these, but we should discuss, but let's just start with Seven Samurai because we kind of started earlier but didn't really get to do the deep One, dive. I just, uh, before you jump on that, the um, some pe- your listeners, listeners might be like, oh, what about Ozu? And it's, it's, Ozu had Tokyo Story in 53. If it was 54, it really yeah. it would be the Yeah, great. it would have been the greatest year ever. The watershed year. ある難関の小さな村に侍の墓が四つ並んだ野心と巧妙に疲れた狂気の時代に全く名利を顧み哀れな百姓たちのために戦った七人の侍の話彼らは無名のまま風のように去った。しかし彼らの優しい心と勇ましい行為は今なお美しく語り伝えられている。彼らこそ侍だ。黒沢明が強烈な女子。彼らはこの旗のもとに戦った。そういうわけだこら。田んぼの田の字。つまり百姓たち。この村だな。この丸は俺たちだ。なんだ、6つしかねえじゃねえか。But Seven Samurai, you mentioned earlier, when it comes to films that are influential, I think Seven Samurai for the film school generation is as influential as, say, Rear Window was on the French New Wave. 
And it's just one of those giant, big-tittied, epic adventure movies that makes you want to run through walls and puts a smile on your face for days. But you seem to have a particular affection for it. So, Chico, well, all right, give so us the, a lowdown on the Seven Samurai. The two big tropes that have become literally standard in movies that I that I think, and this I think might be according to Ebert, but that, that were established in Seven Samurai are A, like the the hero do having like an opening adventure that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie that showcases the hero being the hero a la like indie going after the idol at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark mm. um, and so there's a whole sequence of the, be- the beginning every film he's ever made right every yeah. Bond movie every exactly um, you know and it's something that's totally or even a, maybe the Mission Impossible movies do it but it's very much like you know it's, um, cool it's, it's a total trope and then the other one the much even much cooler one is the whole getting get putting your crew together? Bunch of guys on a mission, like getting, but but not just the guys getting the mission. You have to go one by one oh, yeah. and get the guys. So whether like, it's in comics or in movies, but, but yeah. the, the assembling of the team yes. is better than the actual adventure. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. like Guns of the Navarone, where they go and get each of the guys, or you know, I mean, just any of these movies, you know, The Dirty Dozen or or Magnificent just, Seven, which obviously a remake. Right, of right. Well, remake. Magnificent yeah. Seven is is just a remake of it, just with except as a western. But like, you know, Killer. Lee Peckinpah does it yes. and so yeah, people are always rich but I, it's, a, it's a format that I never grow tired of as long as people are cool and they're no. badasses yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it, and then and then I, I, I'm pretty sure one of the coolest things that I remember about it so you should know Seven Samurai is the first movie my mom rented when we had a VCR so the first time I've I don't know that I've ever actually seen it projected or if I have I've only seen it projected at college in 16 millimeter but I think isn't there in there? Don't they? They actually keep a running tally of like how many dudes they've killed. Like they know well, there's, there's like, like one guy who's really really good. Yeah, who like, we'll but go it's not like the, on screen. He'll like go off, and, no. but he'll go off into the dark and he'll come back and like there are three fewer bandits now. That, but they don't about. actually. There's not like a sign where they're like one. They're crossing off. I feel like I I I can't remember if that's in there or not. They have a rough idea of how many bandits are out there, but obviously they're vastly yeah. outnumbered. Yeah, no, no, they're definitely really outnumbered. I mean, it's definitely like seven and the villagers against like forty or fifty guys, and and they do kind of account for every single one of the the guys that they they kill. Um, you know, you do know at this point, like okay, that the, there are now there's seventeen left, and then there's finally I think there's like thirteen when they finally br- let them, they kind of let them into the village. Yeah, the and giant then, battle in the um, rain. Yeah, yeah, the end battle in the rain is incredible. When you got like the the arrows stuck in the mud that people are using. He's he's shooting with multiple cameras. I mean, he basically just just like extorted Toho. Like like it got to the point where it was so over budget, like they couldn't stop him from filming. But Kurosawa, that is, but. Like, like he's he's inventing um, a whole other cinematic action language in in that movie. Uh, let me just jump on that. That's a good point. It's like before this movie, not a lot of filmmakers were having multiple cameras shooting these kind of battle scenes. I mean, you're sure D.W. Griffith or whatever, but in this kind of movie, they weren't doing like this choreography of action with multiple cameras and shooting like a ton of coverage. And Kurosawa was doing that. And yeah, the old then, of course, like, was Peck you would Paw. actually plan out your camera yeah, movements. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. But then, like, a lot of later directors like Peckinpah or others like that would, would pick, or Leone as well, yeah, shoot would like pick crazy up on and, that. and find yeah. it. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, go I ahead. mean, if you look at something like Robin Hood, like yeah, they choreographed the fight scene, but you have this fantastic swooping. The Adventures Robin Hood. Yeah, I'm talking about like yeah. yeah, the 1938 one. You have these swooping camera stuff, like like where it's but it's only one camera, and it's like most of that duel is like you know three different shots edited together. Where you know I'm talking about the duel at the end with Basil Rathbone, but um, the um, you know, in 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 in, in uh, Seven Samurai, in Seven cross, Samurai, it's like it's like it's closer to the the you know the Battle of Winterfell than it is to anything yeah. that's been that's been before. Yeah. You know, it's quite extraordinary. And like you see, yeah, it's at night and it's in the rain and they're and they're covered in mud and they're like. Yeah, there's also this and the coverage is, is like the angles aren't even great. You know, they're through horses' legs or through seams, like going yeah. through thatched roofs. But that adds to because you had yeah, seen of course, anything of like course. That, you know, like it's like wow. Yeah, I mean, it's really it set the table for every action movie. Yeah, but in if, a way. if you're talking about like the, the influence in the West was profound, and the the guys who were kids in 1954 who would be in film school in the late 60s. Obviously, Kurosawa became one of their gods, and I feel like you know, of all the Japanese filmmakers in their prime in 1954, he very clearly had the biggest influence on pop culture in the West in terms Absolutely. of how we shoot yeah. westerns, how we shoot act. Or in Italy, I mean, obviously Kurosawa was like, you know Jujimba was stolen by uh, Sergio Leone, sure. so his influence cannot be overstated. In my there, there actually is like a an Italian problem um like gladiator version of Seven Samurai gotcha. where you know like <laughs> they're the best thieves in the history of yeah. cinema. Yeah. So, so you but know we'll get to Italy later on because right now I'm gonna say focus on oh, Japan. Oh sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean Japan it's it's such a rich vein, but I saw for the first time ever in preparation for this Samurai One, Masashi Miyamoto, which obviously is Toshiro Mifuni in the same year, but in quite a different role from what we see him in Seven Samurai, where he's in Seven Samurai he's you know like the to, wild man. likes to spank his butt and like moon the enemy. He's yeah. like you know, he's not a member of the noble class. He's, you know, kind of a, a shit kicker hick from, from, from the woods. But here we see him in Musashi Miyamoto going from like peasant status to this enlightened status. I love how after being like hung from a tree and left for dead for days, they finally let him down and they lock him in a room with books for a couple of years. And he's forced to educate himself and become like a noble soul before they finally will like let him back out into the world. But they groom him to be the greatest swordsman in the history of, uh, of Japan. And I think he won more duels on record than any other person that they're aware of. But it's obviously it's the beginning of a trilogy, but it's so cool watching somebody be groomed to become this like, because in his book, he's always talking about if you want to learn poetry, study the fist. And if you want to learn how to do sculpture, study the sword. He's all about multiple disciplines to enhance your knowledge. And you start to see that in this movie. And it's, it's in color. Versus, it's in color, yeah. 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 Big difference between those two. And like, yeah. and most of the, I mean, when I think of Kurosawa, actually, I think of, I mean, a lot of it's in black and white. I mean, I think Throne of Blood is in black and white. And, was uh, Jerzy Ozala, his, what was his first color? You know, see, the, uh, it's like late 60s, early 70s before he started. Oh, does he have an earlier one that? In, I any case, like there's early. But in the fifties, obviously, it but was a like, lot of his. I mean, I don't know. I think of Kurosawa as being black yeah, and white, totally. almost. You know, uh, I mean, it occurs Ron black and white, you know, sure. Yeah. But those are yeah, that's yeah, like seventies, eighties. Yeah. You know. I mean, I saw Ron in the theaters when it was out. But if you're you looking know. at like Hidden Fortress, Yojimbo, Throwing the Throwing Blood, Blood Rashomon, black and white. yeah, all these, yeah. all these are black and all white. Those are all, and those are the five like kind and, of big and, ones. And his crime films like Black Bad Sleep Well and things like that. Right. Yeah. Maybe so, Dersu Azala is the first color. That, that was, was like, like 70s. early seventies. Yeah, but yeah. He might, who knows? He might have a statistical outlier tucked away in there. But obviously, totally. yeah. But there's something but we're, we're forgetting. But color, and it's and it's like, yeah, I can't think of too many like 50s era samurai movies that are in color and so 
it has a very unique like feel and look to it. And it feels more mainstream. It feels more almost like kind of like pro-Japanese propaganda to make people feel good and so on and so I'm, forth. I'm not a big samurai cinema guy. I don't even, I don't, I have not seen this movie. So wh- wh- where? There's a trilogy. It's there's like a trilogy, Samurai right? 1, Samurai 2, and Samurai 3. It's on the Criterion channel, but yeah, this is one of Toshiro Mifune's big, you know, one of his big franchises in the 50s when he was on his way to becoming one of the biggest badasses that ever appeared in movies. They, they run, <laughs> yeah. they run on, on Turner sure, Classic sure, Movies sure. sometimes. You know, like they'll run all three of them back to back. Yeah, I just like seeing his range as a performer because obviously when I think of Toshiro Mifune, I think of Yujimbo. Like, so that's the first persona I think of just scratching his beard, mean as a snake, just gnarly, just fucking guys up. I think of Seven Samurai. Yeah, I think of Seven Samurai. And you think, yeah. but in Seven Samurai, that, that persona is quite different from what you see in like in Sword of Doom and those movies that come yes. later on. Yeah. Because obviously eventually he became just He's a badass and everything. Like he never- What's amazing <laughs> is that he also, like, he has this Cary Grant side to him where he's this really suave, good-looking. Hell yeah. Like, well-dressed, like, driving a really nice car. Like, he has this whole sort of Especially James in his private Bond- life. Yeah, like this James Bond side to him. But we think of him as this, like, sort of unkempt, unshaven, like, like raw, almost almost like Stanley Kowalski, uh, like, male, like, yeah. macho energy of of just all he wants to do is like you know fight fucking drink you know like hell yeah you know like, like, I mean it's like uh, the Brando persona as well well that's a, yeah yeah same same, yeah, same yeah, year yeah. both yeah. these movies coming out yeah um well no but Brando now is getting into his sensitive side I mean like you know the Stanley Kowalski thing is sure. is you know is uh what's uh um what's the unbridled id yeah I mean it's just but um um. The, the dock worker movie. Uh, on, on, on yeah, on the waterfront. He's, it's, it's like his sensitive side. Yeah, more sure. And doing things like when he's hanging out with the Eve Marie Saint, how he'll kind of like take off one glove and like mess with the fingers. And right, like yeah. That. And that was something that he just did yeah. like as, as an actor in movies. But I want to say I focus on Japan. Japan, that, yeah, yeah. Because obviously Ozu's a master, Kurosawa's a master. There are a lot of great Japanese masters. But for some people out there, like my favorite film critic, David Thompson, Kenji Mitsuguchi is the unparalleled master of them all I, I've seen way fewer of his movies I don't really know but he made three this year but there's a big one Sancho the Bailiff which is a, a monster flick uh, y'all have any strong thoughts on Sancho I, I mean, the Bailiff I mean you know Mitsuguchi is you know is is really good but it is I feel like he um, first of all he, he's very much like somebody that I feel like critics like a lot Partially because he's not the popular one, like Kurosawa. He's not the simple one, like like Ozu. Ozu, You know, talking about family. He does these sort of, you know, kind of lush movies. They're usually set in like feudal times. They're beautiful. They're elegant. They are about, you know, issues of tradition and, and everything. And Sancho is really good. But so, yeah, yeah, children from the from the nobility being sold into slavery yeah, and being it, raised exactly. as workers. So and- it's set like in feudal times, and it's like these this this family gets separated, and the kids get sold into slavery, and then like over and sp- it's been decades, spend decades trying to trying reclaim to find their identity their and find their mother. Yeah, it's like it's, Game of Thrones. It's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> and he was also known for like these long takes, and uh, apparently he was a tyrant on set. Yeah, like Ugetsu is the big one that I was familiar Ugetsu, beforehand, yeah. which, I, which I love. But I feel like a lot of people are like you know Sancho is better than who gets this is where I started when we when I started when we finally locked in a date for this episode I was like all right I'm finally gonna watch Sancho the bailiff I'm kind of glad I saved it because I feel like if you're a film fan for too long you start running out of classics to see and this one definitely knocked me on my ass oh wow it was incredibly moving incredibly powerful 
I, I need to see many more Mitsuguchi movies before I, before I can make a fair comparison between him and Kurosawa. But in 1954, I feel like he was right there on his same Wait, level. Wait, Ugetsu's also this year, right? Or am no, I wrong I think about was, that? No, oh, I think okay. that was the year before. Yeah, okay, Ugetsu's right. the year before, okay, and, yeah. then, and then does this one. And it um, this one's really emotional, too. Like the end, there's an end where it, on, on the well, beach. Well, his sister's dead, but he is reunited with his really mother. Amazing. And his mother's had like her Achilles tendon slash so she can't run away anymore. Yep. I mean, they go through some horrific brutality. But also the sad reality is that we don't really know how good Mitsuguchi was because most of his silent films are gone, never to return. Right. Right. And so his whole like late 20s, early 30s period has, for the most part, just been lost to the ravages of time. So we really only know his later work where obviously he was firing on all cylinders. He, there, he did another one in 54, Crucified Lovers. I haven't seen that Yeah, I haven't one. seen his... Uh, he released three movies in this year. I've only seen Sancho the Bailiff. So yeah, Sancho ba- the Bailiff, I feel, is like in the last decade has gotten more and more acclaim. Like it's almost like I remember like 20 years ago no you couldn't even find copies of it and now I feel like it's almost like this legendary movie well, it's of the cool 50s. that you see this one guy whose childhood nobility then spends 20 years of sheer drudgery and slavery and then eventually reclaims a position where he's in a situation where he can kind of get some payback and all the people who have been making life complete total abject hell and one of the first things he does is he eliminates slavery from his area of control which obviously has a lot of pushback because it's just the way things have been done for forever so it's a really meaty juicy drama that I feel like holds up insanely well 60 fucking five years mm. later mm. he was also like a, a big you know women's director at the time what? so is yeah, there right. something going on with communism in japan in the 50s because i'm aware because they, they had the douglas macarthur constitution that has largely remained unaltered since then because all right so the, there's another 54 japanese movie um called garden of women that i i basically only watched because it was on amazon and it was from 1954 <laughs> or it was no it was on turner classic movies it was from 54 but it was really really good um, and and it was it was set in a girls' school that I wasn't hundred percent sure. I think it was a college, but it might have been a high school. I think it was a college. All the girls are in uniform or whatever. But there's a whole thing going on where some of the girls are being attracted to communism, and it's very much about like this new generation, like that's coming up in the post-war years that sort of wants more. Um, you know, than what they're expected to want or whatever, which is going to lead to in the '60s. You have this whole sort of ju- juvenile delinquent situation in 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 no, in, in Japan. Uh, you know, but um, it was the first time I'd ever ex- heard or experienced. And I do rec- recommend Garden of Women, especially anyone who sees like these um, you know, anime uh, you know, movies or or TV shows where you've got like these schoolgirls and stuff like that. But it's like this is like a '50s thing that. And it's like it's very much, you know, about tradition. And these girls are going to college just to like, you know, basically as a finishing school to get married or to become a teacher, maybe. But like a lot of these girls want more. And it's sort of very, very interesting on on that level. And again, it's not. I, I, I mean, it's not one of the better known of the the film. I mean, I looked up the filmmaker, and he. No, I, I was going to just jump in. The filmmaker is really important and has another big 1954 movie. Oh, what? Yeah. So, um, is so these, I saw the wrong one. No, you. It's it's right. It's right. Uh, Kinoshita is the director. Right. What's so the other movie? He, um, did I, I think Twenty Four Eyes? Oh, I don't called. know that at all. So I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So it's a movie. It's like the. It's like one of these movies in Japan that I think like if you were if you grew up 
in Japan since the 50s. Everybody has seen it, but it hasn't really come to the United States as like a great piece of cinema. It's about like this school teacher who teaches um, um, in, in like a small village. I, I, I know it. I haven't like literally sat through it, but um, it's like she's a small teacher. It's a teacher in a small village, and it's about like the great spirit of this teacher. And it's called Twenty Four Eyes, and it's, it's like, like Dead Poet Society type. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I got and the- it's like it's like as bi- famous as any movie. In yeah, Japan. yeah. No, I get it. I got the sense that he was sort of like a Japanese, like Sam Fuller or no, like Robert no. Aldrich, like a man of all, you know, like you know, be you know. But yeah, I didn't realize Twenty Four Eyes is as as famous as like. Well, Garden yeah. of Women was good too, and it's also the his other uh, other movie that year. And that and Twenty Four Eyes is like it's on Criterion. Sure. And like yeah. if you talk to anyone who who's Japanese, they're like, yeah, that was a huge movie when I was growing up. Well, there's one more Japanese movie that is the quite literally the the ten million ton gorilla in the room. <laughs> Everyone's an atomic beastie. Godzilla, something that's on the a very different side of the cinematic spectrum from these other movies we're talking about but we are about to see the release of a Godzilla movie and he's more relevant culturally than ever but this is the the, the big we have some American equivalents of this year but this for me is the big atomic monster of, of the 1950s oh I mean it's the big atomic monster I mean everything else pales in comparison next I mean to this Godzilla. is nine years after so, the dropping of uh, the bombs in Hiroshima right, Nagasaki yeah. and so but like, you know obviously them in America deals with um, atomic mutation as well but Godzilla is the atomic mutation so wait, <laughs> story I, I I, I mean, I think I, I have, I, I, I don't want to monopolize, I have like more to say, I feel like, about Godzilla than almost any other movie that we're going to talk about today. Oh my God, you, like, go for guess, it, man. The, the listeners can't even imagine the right. look of horror that uh, just swept across oh Jamie's my God. face. I love, I love Godzilla, but I am not a connoisseur, so by all means, yeah, well, go it's not for even, it. All right, so uh, A... I, not enough can be said about the music in the Godzilla for, for in the movie Godzilla, but in the gods in the Godzilla series, like you need to realize that I've probably spent like thirty hours of my life riding the subway of just listening to the Godzilla theme in a row, <laughs> like on a crowded subway, glaring at everyone around me. But yeah, no. So the, are, you, are you fantasizing about like being Godzilla? Like, no, killing but everybody? it's just like you you're like in a crowded subway, and this is what's bla- it's like. It just works better than like Miles Davis or you know Led Zeppelin. So the um um it's the longest running series. Um, the he has gone from being you know the enemy to the protagonist to back 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 again. Um, they actually re they they took the I don't know that this has ever been done. They took the 1954 movie Godzilla, Gojira or whatever, and then they spliced in scenes with Raymond Burr 
of uh, you know Rear Window fame and and obviously uh, you know many, many other fame. things, but um, and 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 created like a whole new movie where you know they took out like some of the most interesting things um, in Godzilla because there's a lot of also weird stuff. There are like indigenous people in Japan who have only been recognized like weeks ago, like in 2019, who. Who are the people who know about Godzilla in the movie Godzilla and have these sort of primitive dance scenes that might not be like, you know, politically correct. I don't don't know. Or, you know, like whatever. I don't know if it's the same thing as if we had like African tribal dance stuff in in, 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 in a, you know, 50s movie. But they're, they're sort of really interesting. And there's this very much city versus country stuff going on. But um yeah, I mean, yes, it's just the guy in the rubber suit. The music is what makes it so much more. The lighting also, because while the later ones, like you know, Godzilla versus King Kong, just right. quite literally look like people like on Halloween just like having like a fight. The lighting in the first one is so eerie and so beautiful, and sometimes you'll just have like a little like vague outline of light on them, and you can't really see him that well, and it makes him look so real. And when yeah. he's underwater, it makes him so right, much more like mysterious. Him. Oh, yeah, him underwater. Sorry. So this is another thing. Godzilla is referred to in Japan as uh, they don't use a pronoun, but we refer to Godzilla as a he here. Um, and that's worth pointing out. Like Godzilla is an it in Japanese and Godzilla is he to us here in America. Um, the The... the the first time, this the most. Has he ever laid eggs? Like, if, when, 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 all right, no, Mothra's, a, Mothra's <laughs> definitely female. No, but like, there, there's that stupid Godzilla movie with the little baby Godzilla. Right. Did he lay an egg or what happened? All right. So <laughs> I, all right, I, I myself, I to me, any American Godzilla movie is the equivalent of a Star Wars prequel. Like it shouldn't even be talked about. So I have a very different feeling about this Godzilla movie that's coming out, including the fact that the trailer. But the Godzilla uses... baby one is a Japanese movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, I'm talking about the, I'm talking the little like stuffed animal baby. Like, oh no, that's like his nephew or something. Okay. Oh no, that, is that his son? <laughs> no, his nephew is in the cartoon. You're right that that's his son. But that's when they become stupid. That's when they start making them for kids. This is a movie about the new. Nuclear, you know, about the nuclear bombs and the effect of them. Um, but but I, wait, isn't every single monster movie in the last 50 years? Uh, well, I mean, about, certainly Dracula and Frankenstein like aren't. That. But yeah, I think a they're lot all of them, like eco, certainly in the 50s and the 60s, yeah. Them, but, another 54 movies, the same story. But, they're yeah, always no, 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 but wait, I just want to say the first, the, the most disappointing, or if I could remove one shot from one film in the history of film, the first time we see Godzilla, it's a paper mache head coming over a hill as like the main male and female human characters are running and it's so cheesy that I actually think that it like kind of ruins the stuff that comes later that looks really cool like for normies or for people who aren't like monster movie fanatics or whatever I think that once you see him as this paper this lame paper mache head which is the first way that you actually see him I, I and that that's like clearly didn't detract from his popularity. They've made quite a few of these. No, but so but but the thing is, the interesting thing is, he comes and trashes Tokyo like he's against humanity, and then they then they change him, and then Godzilla becomes like a kids franchise, and and then again, I think Godzilla is such a Japanese thing that I think the Ameri- like the idea of doing them in America, like there's no. 
there's no context for us to have a Godzilla, you know? I mean, yes, we did all the... New, there, that's another thing to think about 54. There was crazy nuclear, like, atomic testing going on. <laughs> it leads to them. Right, yeah. which leads to them. But also, like, you had people in, like, Vegas, like, literally, like, at 6 o'clock, going Having outside, putting on and, sunglasses yeah. and watching the you mushroom You sit on the top clouds. of the hotels at cocktail hour and watch mushroom clouds in right. the distance. Right, which is, which is mind-boggling. And get a winter tan. But, yeah. I, you know, the tone of Godzilla has changed so much, and it's so quintessentially such a Japanese story that I don't understand they why. They still make even, them like Netflix had an animated trilogy of, of Godzilla movies that I didn't particularly like, but they had great scenes. But they are in Japanese, Japanese animation, and God, God, the scenes with Godzilla at least were great and look really cool. So they still make them. And Godzilla's also gotten bigger throughout the years. Like Godzilla is now like 9,000 feet tall, and like Godzilla is like, you know, a few, you know, maybe like 80 feet tall. Yeah, or every movie like gets that. a little bigger. You know, but it gives us, um, if you want to somehow make it like have an internal logic, he's still growing. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that, that that's actually interesting. Uh, but um, I don't know. I, I just think it's a huge artistic achievement. Like, you know, like the, the, the final act of Godzilla where that music is blaring and he's just coming in and just wrecking Tokyo mm. is just so satisfying and wonderful like from your enthusiasm it sounds like you think this is the Japanese film of 1954 or you oh, no, maybe no, even no, think this is the greatest no, I, Seven Samurai is still big. it's just I think that you know I think most people hear Godzilla and they think of like you know they, it just they they automatically dismiss it, and the first was because they haven't seen the first movie. Because the first movie, in terms of the illusion of cinema and like great, like just great craft, yeah, they sell you on him being this giant horrible beast, and he looked he just looks fucking awesome. It's also one of those things like now you watch it and everything seems like a cliche, yet it was the first time yes. they did it. You know, so it's like it was kind of the first movie that had the the scene with the scientist. It was the first movie that like had the scenes with, establishing troops. Well, yeah. the notion the notion that there were these primitive people like who lived on like these small islands who were totally familiar with Godzilla and like the city people didn't believe Godzilla existed. I mean, we have that trope here where there's like a Native American, you know, who will tell the white people tell you about like, the Wendigo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the, the 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 you know sort of the white people don't believe them, and then they all get eaten. You know, so it, it it has that, except you're watching it in the context of Japan, which has its own weird and wild history. I just like that this this movie's part of this year because when we look back at old movies, we tend to look at the art films like the great classics. But here we have on one on one side. We've got Sancho the Bailiff on the other side. Godzilla it just shows the wondrous variety going on in Japan at this time mm-hmm. as well. It's not just about artistic masterpieces. It's about entertaining the shit out of people as well. And 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 in an enduring way. I mean, it's like, again, Godzilla is, the, you know, they made 22 Marvel movies in 12 years or whatever. I mean, they've made, you know, I don't know. Who knows how many Godzilla movies. Well, you go anywhere in, in the world and say Godzilla. And they're like, yeah, even if you've never seen a movie. It's like Superman. You go anywhere in the world, people know who Superman is. Oh, you go anywhere in the world, they know who the fuck Godzilla is. What was the source I mean, the God- material? The Godzilla cry, the, the Godzilla's roar, is like the most iconic sure. sound. Like, who knows what King Kong's roar sounds like, you know? Like, But like Godzilla's roar, that metallic roar is so unbelievably iconic that it, literally until Star Wars, until you get like that like TIE fighter scream or the mm. Wookiee roar, there isn't any single, you know, sort of sound effect. Source material is a story by Shigeru Kayama, but it looks like it was just an original screenplay. They just wanted to make wow. a kick-ass flick. Now... Yeah, well, so, all right, so I don't know if, did you want, I mean, like, it does segue into them, which... No, it segues better into another 50, 1954 monster movie, actually, that also 
is probably oh, Black Lagoon. Yeah. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before, in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. Creature of the Black Lagoon, Mr. Workman. So, I mean, you know, I that seems to be a movie that obviously with Shape of Water has become more and more of an, of an icon from this year. Um, it's probably the most iconic monster in American horror of that decade. Come on. With oh, all the certainly. universe. Really? With all the universal horror movies? No, he said of that decade. Those the uh, other okay, universals are I, much I, I gotcha, earlier. Exactly. All the other icons are from the 30s. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, you know, pretty great movie. Still holds up. It is just a guy in a, in a rubber suit, but it, it's pretty pretty great and um, it looks fucking real it looks the suit looks great is also i forget her name but i just want to give a shout out i mean designed by a woman a woman designed that suit and you know there are so many women who do cool stuff in in cinema and they get you know your marshall lucas's and your whoever who get like Probably kind of Platt. pushed out of the sure yeah you're yeah he just had this is like her prime yes a, a, absolutely but um yeah the, the I, I i love the image of the the creature from the black moon the aesthetic the look of it With the sun is, the water. Is, is is so extraordinary um, and I think the woman is it June something or other the woman the Julia woman? Adams. Julia Adams is is really hot in she's it. She's really and hot. Like you know, like it, it, it's another one of these eco movies. Though. Oh, absolutely. It's the same, you know, it's a, what what we were saying before with Godzilla. I mean, it, isn't it like they the the water gets polluted or something like that? Uh, his origins. Well, he's uh, from the depths of the Amazonian jungle. I thought he was just something I'd never been encountered before. Right. I think it's more that them is more the the Godzilla thing. God, them more is like the nature the run amok. Giant, yeah. yeah, yeah, nature run amok. Exactly. Exactly. But um, I, it's also worth noting that um, this is got uh, uh, Black Lagoon is 3D. And so 3D is something that's big. In, it's a new innovation yeah. along with CinemaScope. And it just didn't do quite. I mean, they released a shitload of movies in 3D. Like Dial in for Murder, you could do Dial in for Murder. You could was see a 3D e- movie. either or, but the glasses were just so clunky. Both of these are, you know, 1954. Yeah. I mean, Dial in for Murder also. Yeah, but this is one of the big innovations to try to stay relevant, stay new. But you know, when it comes to comparing Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, Creature of the Black from the Black Lagoon, I just think it's interesting how there was this giant gap from like the early 30s to the early 50s before you had a new icon that was up there with like the Invisible Man, but he's always lumped in with the rest of them in spite of coming from an entire generation later. Was was the, um, Black Lagoon, was it a, like a B movie at the time? Or was it considered like an A? No, I, I would assume it was a B movie. I would I assume mean, so too. I mean, it's an hour, 19 minutes. It's definitely short. It could have easily been on the do- bottom half of a double bill. It had yeah. no, yeah, exactly. It doesn't have any stars in it. It doesn't have it. anybody in. It wasn't a property. 
So I feel like it it somehow it's become elevated. But I feel like probably every monster movie from the 30s through shit like the 70s was probably you know a, a low budget affair. Did they ever do any sequels to it? Because all the others like there's like five Wolfman yeah. movies and 15 Frankenstein movies Absolutely. and like 75 Dracula movies. And then like the the hybrids with the comedies with Abbott and Costello. Right. And the, I mean the first time I actually saw him was in the Monster Squad, which was obviously had all the Universal monsters mm. in the context of one movie, and it's just you know kids running up against them. But I remember they uh, they killed Gilman with a shotgun blast to the chest, like no no fancy crucifix, no fancy like you know elaborate technique. They just kill him with a shotgun and boom, he drops. I was, yeah. I was, he kind of got the shaft when it came to elaborate death. Scenes. The underwater stuff's also really good and really convincing like it's um you know like they're scooping you don't, yeah you don't feel like they're shooting no. it in a tiny pool somewhere no. yeah well there's all right and then there's that one sequence underwater where he she's swimming and he's swimming below her and mirroring it and from like a cinematic you know it's a black and white movie from a cinematic point of view i'm thinking of some of the really sort of great stuff in the johnny weissmuller maureen o'sullivan tarzan jane which had like straight up like softcore porn yes. in some mm. cuts you there are someone fucking buck ass naked she's naked yeah, <laughs> and they, yeah. they had different versions for different territories but yes. you can totally see in the early pre-code yeah, early you, 30s you tarzan can see her pubic hair. she is buck ass and yeah. it is stunningly beautiful stuff it is and, and i love how he basically he grabs her clothes and rips them off as he hurls her into the water and then dives in after her. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> it's I mean, but this, this, the, 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 the she's swimming unbeknown. He doesn't know he's there, and like the, the creature falls in love with her. Are we positive as a man? Going back to the whole Godzilla, he versus uh, yeah, her. No, I don't know. We don't know. I mean, he's a, another reptile. Could be, you know, or amphibian. That's the question of Monster Squad. Wolfman have does Wolfman have nards? Right. Yeah. Um, Wasn't that also Shape of Water? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I mean, he. I, I, well, they he, have sex and shit. Yeah, they have, shit, they have. But sex. Is he, does he have like something that like comes out or what? I can't remember because they definitely get it on. I, I I have to say, I mean, I I I, the 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 way they rip. I mean, like I I. You can also say that it's Abe Sapien, right? From uh, Hellboy. From Hellboy, but. Which is also like two other Guillermo del Toro movies. So, yeah. I, I just think that Guillermo del Toro, like he knows enough horror. Like why? I, I know that that it's. I mean, it's that issue of like you know, is it a, is it an homage or is it a ripoff? And blurry I, line between the two. Well, that movie in particular, and you know, it's such a random like best picture. Um, you know, I always just, forget that it won an Oscar. For I know. <laughs> it's just so weird. That, it's ar- you know, it already seems irrelevant. But all, every single Best Picture film know, feels irrelevant. Same like with people, this year, like, too. If you ask me a week after the Oscars who won Best Picture, I struggled to remember. And what's extraordinary Green is Buck, there were yeah. so many good wins this year, but like, yeah. That, but like, yeah, the Best Picture one was the ridiculous one. Well, while we're on the topic of monster flicks, we got to talk about them because I think them is underrated. People think, oh, it's just a bunch of stupid giant ants. But they're actually pretty goddamn freaky in how you have like this opening with like a girl coming out of the desert like in a state of shock, and they take a long time to introduce them, and as they're introduced through sound, them actually is pretty damn cool. And if, we, if you want to talk about it's it's the lesser known or less less effective version of Godzilla, but just made for American audiences. And I like how they keep realizing the threat's even bigger than they thought and how some of them can fly and that they're, they're, they're queens laying eggs and how it could just be like a domino effect. It could get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think it's a very well done sci-fi monster flick. And it obviously launched a million imitations. Like Roger Corman made a hundred million of these. Like, you know, it conquered the world and all these things. But them really gets the, the giant insect 
subgenre underway in America. And they stra- and they straight up say that it's because of the nuclear test thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also some like interesting stuff how they figure out oh they're eating sh- uh, they're eating sugar like the way that they figure out that it is giant ants you know like they're they're like what the hell is doing this. It, it, it's just it, it is it, it is better than your average B monster movie for sure. Uh, it also actually and, uh, and, and in Conquer the World you can see a two by four pushing the monster into frame. Right, I mean it's ridiculous. I mean you can tell that the ants are fake, but the the sound is the sound of the ants is so terrifying that it adds this whole other element. And of, there's a science about the ants and how they behave and how the ants are the only other species other than human beings in the world that will enslave their own species. Nice. Yeah, like they will totally enslave and put to work other ants that they conquer when they meet them in war. So I, I don't know if we're going to get to it, but but Paul Newman's uh, uh, um, first appearance in film is this year, and them features the first appearance of a very important uh, actor, none other than Leonard Nimoy. Really, Leonard Nimoy is in them. Yeah, so he's like. Like a radio operator. The guy plays Brooks in Shawshank, your it's favorite James movie. That's right. Yeah, I remember right. seeing them and being like, hey, that's the guy from Shawshank. Yeah, I mean, he actually has a really big role in uh, Asphalt Jungle. Asphalt Jungle. He's the driver. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. He's the hunchback. In, 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 but um, yeah, so Leonard Nimoy is like a radio operator who has like one line, like, and it's like a, a, a sentence nice. that's like three words or less. Like, But it's his, it's his movie premiere. And there's something very appropriate about that, just with Spock and, uh, you know, um, in search of, of and invasion of the body snatcher, you know. Um, in fact, the few times I've seen Leonard Nimoy and it isn't sci-fi, it feels very weird. Hmm. Like when he directed Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, I'm saying like I've seen him in things like where he's it's not it's not no, sci-fi. He, he, he and that genre are one. Yes. Yeah, so so um, but but them is them is classier than than I think people realize. Agreed. Um, I mean, it's still a drive-in movie. With I mean, there was you know, and that class, was a big aspect. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a makeup yeah. movie without yeah, a doubt. Yeah, totally. But while we're on the subject of giant monsters. It, there is, I think, one of the most famous giant monsters ever, and it's a movie I know you hold near and dear to your heart, 20,000 Leagues Below the Sea, or Beneath or Below. I always fuck up the title. I think it's... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's Under, under the Sea. Under the sea. Yeah. We'll be fighting at close quarters with the most tenacious of all sea beasts. Stay clear of the tentacles. They'll seize anything within reach and hang on to the death. The only vital spot is directly between the eyes. Already beaten surfacing, sir. Stand by. So that it, it's considered to be the first steampunk movie. The 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 design of the Nautilus is extraordinary. I have been at Comic Con within the last ten years and seen like you know they have these really elaborate like two thousand dollar toys that like who the hell is buying or whatever or not toys models. I don't even know what you call there's them. There's a steampunk but subculture I've, that is weird. I've seen yeah. one, I've yeah. seen like a like a four foot Nautilus or like a two foot Nautilus and it's like it's really extraordinary for people to know the Nautilus is the is Captain Nemo's submarine? It's Jules Verne, so it's it's um, you know it's it's a little uh, you know it's a little wordier. It's a Disney live action Disney movie. It's fa- very family friendly. It's James Mason who is gives a tour de force performance in uh, um, A Star Is Born, uh, the second version of A Star yeah. Is Born in '54. But he also gives a tour de force performance as Captain Nemo. 
in in this. I mean, like he literally, as villains go, movie villains go. He's like a Bond villain. He's Captain Nemo, but he's like one of the five best Bond villains. Like you know, he's like a really good. Vi- he's not the man with the golden gun. You know what I mean? Like how dare you? Okay, I haven't seen this. Make the case that I need to see this. I movie. think you know you have kids. I think it's a family movie. Um, you know, it's, Kirk, it's so Kirk, wholesome it could give you diabetes. Kirk, Kirk Douglas is, it's got a great cast. Kirk Douglas is good. And he had a bunch of extra scenes written in where he's got like a girl under each arm and everything. Like he was worried about losing his tough guy image at this time. Cause he was like, and we'll get to it when we get to Italian film, but he was doing movies like Ulysses around this time. Sure. He wanted to be the big, strong, badass dude. So he made them kind of dirt kind of slut it up a little bit and add these extra scenes that imply that he's got this enormous libido i i i I just the the uh the the end like nemo is an anti-hero that you just didn't see in movies in the 50s he's a great sci-fi villain maybe maybe you do like like he's comparable to like an ethan edwards and depending upon your point of view you might regard him as the most interesting heroic character in there right so (laughs) he's 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 like like he's like thanos like he wants to kill everybody because of the for the to save the environment and that comes from the Verne stuff which is like 19th century um but it's, and now he it survives entirely off of things that he finds in the sea like all the food everything i make mean, he's a he's like this he's his own little ecosystem and his own little community beneath the water so all that's and like the underwater color footage when they're actually when they go out on these little safaris and they're looking at octopi swimming around it is some stunning gorgeous stuff and i would say as stunning as the island footage that Buñuel includes in Robinson Crusoe, like Robinson Crusoe, right, but that, that's like a that was made for like a nickel and a dime. Yeah, he made it for know? yeah for for nothing. But if you want to see the most expensive movie in history, I think at the time. Yes, it was. Yeah, so you're talking like a like a nine ten million dollar budget at a time when like you know major movies got like a one million dollar budget. Like it could have broken Disney. Um, but it, it's um, the idea of I I don't know. The, the, like, what do you think it, of the songs? Because for me, what yeah, I have uh, a hard time when it gets so wholesome like that, and when Kirk Douglas starts singing these, and I know he learned to play the guitar, the ukulele for this movie. But when the songs start, I want to kill myself. I actually have always wondered if some of the references in the um, Wes Anderson movie, in the you know, in the the Life you Aquatic, know, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, of of what's his face, the Brazilian guy playing the David Bowie songs. Yeah. I actually wonder if those. Those are references to Kirk Douglas in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it is a Disney movie and it's a live action Disney movie in 1954. Yeah, it's always seemed so creaky to me, but that I, I don't want to give it and, two hours. And, and at the time, the, the battle with the squid was a big deal. Yeah, it's huge. It's, um, it's the best part of the movie. I mean, you know, and I've seen clips of that. And 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 I know Walt. I know Disney World. I don't know if Disneyland did, but like they had a twenty thousand leagues under the sea ride for like thirty years, where you get into a Nautilus, and they do. You know, you're in the Nautilus, and the squid grabs you. Um, it, it just is um, between the fact that like the villain has a legitimate environmental argument and is played by someone with James Mason stature. Imagine if he was playing Submariner in a 1954 like Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> and actually, it's funny because I feel like a younger James Mason might look a little like Namor. Absolutely, um, Imperious Rex. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's definitely it's it's worth seeing. Um, 
I, I mean, I think you have to look at it a little bit as like a product of its time. Yeah, it's not. It's not the abyss. No, and, <laughs> and it's not whatever Avatar two ends up being. But when it comes to underwater adventure movies, it's obviously a giant step forward in terms of what adventure movies are capable of. It's and, another one that's been said to be re- being remade constantly. The, the, yeah, it's an, I mean, those those classic sci fi and adventure stories from the late Victorian period are they, they're right, they're but immortal. like literally a list yeah. people are yeah. always attached to it, like a remake. It's just got a beautiful title, also. Yeah. 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea, you could basically go around the world Under. two and a half times. Sorry, I keep saying beneath, but it doesn't exist. You cannot be 20,000 right. leagues below the sea. Well, that's, I mean, you know, Jules Verne didn't know that probably. At yeah, the, you would circumnavigate the, time, the globe was, two and a half times if you went that deep. But, but I, you know, again, uh, just, um, the, I, I don't know. Cut that. I don't remember. I don't know where I was going to go with that. Just, just, just cut that. Um. Well, Jeremy, let, let's, yes. let's let's knock the ball over to your side of the court. We've got a lot of interesting topics that are still left from Italy to just some other foreign films that are out there that are not from Italy to Westerns to musicals or any of these topics of particular sure. interest Sure. I mean, you. really, any. Whoa. Sorry. I almost. Hang on. Let's, we, it, by the way, test. we have brought out the test, alcohol. Test, test. So. Test, t- test, test. Everybody test. can hear, everybody can talk. I, just so you know, I actually haven't drank any of this yet. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, we had, the alcohol is out. Yes. Yeah, well, I've been sipping on my bow more. Right. Um, you know, really, you know, again. And we've we, even got we, some comedies in there we haven't talked about. Yeah, but I mean, the uh, we talked about Japan. I mean, I think we should stay on sort of the foreign current for a second. Um, let's, let's, do, let's do Italy. Yeah, Italy's Italy. It might be the richest vein of any of these topics. It really, it really was. I mean, you know, we could sort of go back and forth between some of the great ones. Um, I'm a big fan of Journey to Italy, uh, which a lot of people. Um, George Sanders. Yeah, I mean, in that's his prime doing so, his thing. So that's a really neat movie, which is um, a Roberto Rossellini movie with Ingrid Bergman. And a lot of people sort of think that maybe it's his best movie. It's pretty. It's, I think it's his most enjoyable one. Some of those early neorealism ones, I'm like, this is homework, but I'm not having fun. Sure. I love Journey. Like Rome, movie. Open City, or yeah. Paisan. I don't or know. Open City's got some really. Yeah, I mean, they're still, great. Like, some torture scenes and stuff. Sure. World War II was still going on while they made that. But you can, you can feel, like, of all the experiments between Rossellini and Bergman, and it's funny, like, my grandfather used to always talk about, he would never even mention Rossellini. By name, you're like, and Ingrid Bergman married some greaseball. I'm like, Roberto Rossellini's like one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived. But all my grandfather knew was that Ingrid Bergman left Hollywood to marry some greaseball, and like, you know, and she, and she didn't come back for a very long But this, she was returning to Europe. They made a lot of movies together, but I think this is their most successful collaboration. Yeah, and it's really, really simple. It's just a, you know, it's a, it's a marriage in crisis movie, and they're traveling on a trip to Italy, and it's George Sanders and Ingrid Bergman, and. They just kind of go on this trip and kind of realize that they, you know, that their marriage is falling apart and they visit sites. And and yet it's really, it it feels, it's really emotional. It's really powerful. It's really well made. And George Sanders was so underutilized in so many kind of subpar movies. Like apart from All About Eve, I feel like he very rarely found material that could really put his laconic, world-weary, suave side to work. But here he's in fine form. Yeah, for for years, um, and and they did it in English too. That was the other thing. It was it was a movie done in English. So it was an Italian director in the middle of of, of Italy, and I think it was probably dubbed 
you know, they probably redubbed it. Up, yeah, obviously. like a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is we're starting to see the great heyday of Hollywood on uh, what's it the the Rhine? Is that what's the river that goes through Rome? Um, oh, I'm no, the Rhine is Germany. What, what's, what's the river? The El- is it the Elbe, the Tiber, the Elbe? The, uh, Hollywood on the Tiber. Yeah. Hollywood on the Tiber is yeah. beginning where you have these incredible collaborations where Hollywood and Rome merged for like a decade, decade and a half, and you have all these extraordinary collaborations where you're having Hollywood movies shot there. Or Italian movies starring Hollywood talent, like La Strada with Anthony Quinn, or Anthony Quinn and Kirk Douglas appearing in Ulysses. And I love this cultural exchange that begins around this time. And I, I can't imagine a more entertaining place to be than in Rome in the early mid-50s as these two worlds started to collide. It relates to another big Italian movie of 54, uh, the Visconti movie Senso. Which is a big Criterion release. Yeah, yeah. and that's also, that has like Farley Granger in it. Right. And I know that. Dubbed in Italian, yeah. Dubbed in Italian, but I know like they were trying to get Brando in it. And it sort of goes back to your point about like all these like sort of weird people going to Italy and making these movies at the time for these great directors. So besides just, you know, another great classic of Italian cinema, you also, you know, we we have a great Rossellini in 54. We have a great Visconti in 54. We have a great Fellini in 54. Yeah. So it's like when you're really, I mean, like I'm trying to think who else was good at the time. De Sica, I don't think De Sica has one in 54, but now obviously you don't, you're not quite quite ready yet for the next generation, like the next wave of people, like whether you're talking about uh, Bertolucci or Antonioni or or Leone or the horror guys. But in 54, you do have one of the horror guys who's just getting started because Mario Bava co-directed Ulysses, which is one of my, it might be my new favorite adaptation of a Greek myth that I've ever seen on, wow, on, on, on the wow. screen. I, I just wanted to interrupt. I, I, it's one of the, I, I haven't seen that and it's on my list. I've basically spent the last year watching movies like that for my for my upcoming podcast. And it's really great that you give that, that um, you know, that, that study because there's actually a little bit of a, I, uh, There's a very short list of effective Greek mythology adaptations. Maybe like you could say, kind of like on on a few fingers. Right. But this one now is included, and it's very streamlined. But they use a great framing device where basically there's a ticking clock scenario where Ulysses' wife is basically trying to keep her suitors at bay. She yeah. keeps them a more more. And, this, and that's in the Odyssey. Yeah, it's in yeah. the Odyssey. And you have Ulysses who's got amnesia on a nearby island. And at one point, he walks out and looks at the water, and you just see the highlights from the Odyssey. Like you see everything with um, with the son of uh, with the son of uh, Poseidon, with the Cyclops who tries to eat everybody. You see Circe, you see the sirens. But because he's seeing flashbacks, you don't have to have the entire. That's narrative. awesome the, wow. the, how they handle that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And then the, when the flashbacks over, his memory comes back. He heads over to Ithaca and does like the test when he's like dressed up as a beggar, shoots the arrow through the arrow for the, uh, the axe heads, and right. kills everybody. But Anthony Quinn plays one of the suitors who's going to war. With them and it, they just because it's made in Italy, it's much more er, like erotic and the women more voluptuous and more sexually hungry. Right. And when the Cyclops starts eating Odysseus's men, f- they nail it. Like the special effects are really convincing. It's just this big, brawny, hairy Italian guy, but they handle it really effectively. This is like pre Harry Housen or like Harry Housen's pretty early, but I, I, I absolutely loved it and adored it. And uh, it just it makes me happy there's at least one solid adaptation of the story of Odysseus out there. Hmm. And Anthony Quinn's also in it. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, uh, and, and so Mario Bava, a lot of these guys, Sergio Leone is is showing up as like a second director or like an assistant director yeah. or, like a, or, or like a second unit director in movies at this Absolutely. point. Um, I, I, I think so, some of the horror guys even, maybe, maybe it's later. But, but you, it's a great tradition where you would gro- you you had to work on like 50 movies as a first AD before finally someone would like be too drunk or unreliable and be like, all right, we need another mm-hmm. director. And right. you could kind of step into their shoes. 
or or somebody leaves, you know. Um, yeah, because because I actually did. Yeah, I, I th- th- that that's that that's uh, yeah. People should check that out because uh, a lot of those sword and sandal movies do not hold up very good or aren't very good, and they're you know the bad dubbing. I mean, I'm not suggesting it, this is a, like on a production level of like Fellowship of the Ring. I mean, it, it is of its time. But if you're a Greek mythology buff, and I, I lived off Greek mythology yeah. for like the first ten years of my life. It, I actually saw it dubbed in English at camp when I was like nine, but everybody was like talking. It was like a big giant room of like kids outdoors with like mosquitoes, and like I, I just wasn't paying attention at all. And I'm thrilled to have discovered this because it's totally right up my alley. Hmm. But uh, La Strada, we can. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we La just did a giant Fellini episode recently with Tony Stella, but La Strada is part of 1954, and of all the farm films releasing this year, this is one of the one of the big dogs. I mean, it it's really a, is. It's a colossus. It's, it's, it's huge. Some people would argue it's as big as Seven Samurai. There is one little footnote on this, which is like it, it, um, because this is right when um, foreign films are coming into the United States for the first time. La Strada wins best foreign film in 57. Gotcha. Interesting. So it, I don't even think it made it to the US until 56 or 57. Um, so, but it came out in, in 54. It yep. was made in, in, and came out with these other films. Now, would it have played in the, would it have played here in 54 in like <laughs> art house theaters? I don't think it played in, in 50, because there weren't the art house theaters the way that they were set up like in the 60s and they started to get set up in Got the it. 60s and the yeah. late 60s. Um, I think it was one of those movies where it was such a huge hit and so loved in Europe that then they hadn't brought it here, but at that point it was like 56, 57. Got it, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Venice, it played in 54, and then it was released in Italy in September 54. I'm not seeing a U.S. release date on the Wikipedia I know it won Best entry. Foreign Film, but that it was not 54 or 55. It might have been 57. But it definitely won yeah. in 57. That's 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just one well, of those... won Best Foreign Film in 1954? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a sec. But um, yeah, let's I should know this. It's not. It's not. Cause I think Seven Samurai won the the following year. Cause like you had these giant staggered release schedules. What the hell did win in '54? It's I, probably something that now is kind of lost. Well, of course, because that's almost always the case. I mean, the yeah. Oscars are, you know. Yeah, a lot of people. It's a, a lot of people's favorite Fellini movie. Yeah. It's the one that's the least. It's kind of the least kind of 
baroque in a way of of Fellini's movies. It's basically the story of of you know this woman and uh, played by Julietta Messina, who's going to become his wife, and uh, Anthony Quinn, who is again a situation where he's an American actor or international actor. Yeah, and he's brought over, and um, you know they're sort of travel, and they're these kind of you know circus characters that are sort of traveling through Italy in the countryside. And he's really mean to her. Yeah, very mean. And could we say... (laughs) Zampano. They say say that Catherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby is the first example of the manic pixie girl as as a trope in a movie. It's always dangerous to make these sweeping statements. Well, no, but I was going to say, would we say that Giulietta Messini's character is that? Messina. Messina, sorry. Some people would say she's like an extension of Harpo Marx. Some people say she's Chaplin-esque. I mean, her performance is so remarkable and so moving and so expressive you can basically project onto it a lot of uh, labels but it's just it's a marvelous performance but the movie also you really start to see Fellini employing this strange sense of the fantastic and the everyday kind of overlapping where like just like a horse would just like stumble through frame when somebody sit in there sad but like I said before I think it's a lot less baroque and in some ways it's more um, approachable for for people that are not like you know movie heads it's the gateway drug to Fellini definitely definitely but it's such a far cry between that and say eight and a half, which is well, that's like the movie lovers movie. And like, no, you, but I mean, yeah, but it's like it's only a few years later. Like it's pretty extraordinary. Well, so it's in, but oh, okay, it's a yeah. full decade. So, but okay. you have to also think like between and, and, and between that time, he also does like La Dolce Vita and all these other monstrous right. movies. And he does he does Nights of Maybe Cabiria. that's what I'm. Th- I'm actually that's what I meant. I meant actually La Dolce Vita, which yeah, is yeah. where, which is when fifty eight, sixty, okay, sixty, sixty one. All right, yeah. so all right, so, so yeah, it's a few years. But you have to also remember. Between La Strada and Eight and a Half, it was as like strong a run as any director who's ever lived. Because sure. you have Knights of Capiri in there, you've got Little Tavita, and then you got Eight and a Half. It's a really strong. And before La Strada, you had Ivy Delone, and you also had uh, White Sheik. That's so, a good, th- those are both good. Yeah, yeah. He, he, it's it's as good a ten year, twelve year run as you can think of. And then he still had some great ones to come later on. So he's he's one of the true giants. But I feel like 1954 is the beginning of art house cinema dictating the tastes and preferences and uh, just like philosophy of Hollywood directors. Because you had a lot of foreign directors working in Hollywood beforehand, but all of a sudden now you have these filmmakers like, say, Woody Allen watching Bergman movies and watching uh, Fellini movies, and it's just changing their life. And speaking of which, Bergman has a movie this year as oh, well. Oh, wow. I a Lesson in Love, which I'd never even heard of, but it's on the Criterion channel, and I did watch it before this. <laughs> wow. Gunnar Bjornstrand, it's got... A husband and a wife falling out of love, having affairs, and then falling back in love, and it fucking rocks. Is is it? I mean, like a few years later, when he has like the double double whammy of Seven Seal and like Wild Strawberries in the same year. Yeah, it's not on that level. That's 1957, and that was that's another great year, by the way. 1957 yeah. is a great year, and it has a lot to do with Wild Strawberries and Seven Seal. But any year we I mean, have sorry, Bergman uh, yeah. and Fellini releasing a movie in the same year, that, that that's a, that's a good year. Totally, right? totally. But well, Bergman was really prolific. I feel like he released movies most years. A movie a year for like 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hadn't really, really thought about that. Actually, that run of Fellini's run is really is really quite impressive. Because to have, to have a run, because he also sort of fell off in the 70s and into the 80s. And well, it, was still making Amacord movies. Amacord was like, like 73 or 74, which for a lot of people is the last great one. And he, uh, he has a lot of like oddities afterwards. Where people will defend sequences yeah. and like movies they love, but they recognize it's not on the level of La Strada. But yeah, Fellini, he's one of the giants. And I feel like, yeah, he's 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 in the pantheon of great directors. Well, what's interesting about La Strada 
Lestrada, especially for 1954, is that I think a lot of the, you know, anyone who's like a film head will say like, oh, eight and a half, that's that's the great Fellini Because it's about filmmaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes some people might say La Dolce, La Dolce Vida. Vida. Yeah, but anyone who's say. like just kind of a human being might say La Strada. So I feel like that's in some ways La Strada gets the nod as, as the as the greatest Fellini because it's a little bit more mainstream than some of the other ones. I mean, my first film class I ever took in college when they were introducing us to various directors, La Strada was part of the core curriculum sure. that invited us in just in, even into the idea of enjoying foreign films. So for me, I can't separate it from that period where I was first learning about movies and getting into movies. So for me, it's like, it's one of like the main foundational blocks yeah. beneath this giant cathedral of cinema. Yeah. So Knights of Kabiria is also pretty good. That was, it. and that was also 57. Yeah, which we were years talking later. about yeah. with Seven Seal and you know um, which is also a pretty pretty major year but Lestrada you know another thing about Lestrada it goes with what you were saying before about American actors going Richard Basehart who was in like these you know studio movies and he's in it and yep. it's just it's just you know, reminds you it's of a these cultural kind of, exchange. Yeah, these kind of odd Italian the artistic movies. results are wondrous to behold. So yeah, it, this is the beginning of Italy as like dominating the world stage, and like you know, from now up through like Cleopatra. I mean, it's just Hollywood and uh, Italy. Their fates were intertwined in a lot of ways. And again, you got to remember what's going on in the world at this time. That it's literally less than a decade after World War II, and you know, all Europe had been completely destroyed and ravaged, and is being rebuilt, and Italy is sort of rebuilding under this. Their, new image. With, their economy you know, was surging in, in the 50s. Right, but and part of that is because what, what, what's the big car? Was it Fiat or the, the, the fancy car? They had a very, fa- you know, the... Um, Lamborghini? No, but <laughs> they, all of that came with Ferrari. Yeah, it was like, you know, they, 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 the, the image of, of Italy sort of rising out of the ashes... Yeah. Um, in the fifties, is 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 its own like sort of extraordinary story, and becoming, you know, this you know sort of fashion icon, you know, like that kind of thing, which, um, which abides to this day with like Milan and things like that. Right. So, yeah, it became like the heart of glamour and sophistication. And the other thing about La Strada, it's a Dino De Laurentiis movie. Yeah, Carlo Ponti and Dino De Laurentiis were producing all these movies. So, so like Dino De Laurentiis, who like a lot of your listeners know from like, you know, Flash Gordon and, you know. I'm wearing a Flash 19- Gordon t-shirt, Right, baby. there you are. Exactly. You're wearing the 1980 Flash Gordon t-shirt. I mean, but Dino De Laurentiis also gave us Dune yeah. and uh, sure. Velvet. Totally. Blue, yeah, and, you know, and, and incredible David and Lynn Man stuff. Manhunter. And Manhunter. Of course, of course. And, uh, you I know. I got to work for him on, uh, on Hannibal. So he's, he's one of the true titans of uh, when it comes to producing. Thing, he is one. He is one of the legends. So yeah. So he was a producer on La Strada. So that sort yeah. of launched. Yeah, he, I think him he produced well. his first movie was nineteen. So he he, was, he wasted no time. Well, let's shift uh, back to the other side of the planet because while this is not my go-to genre, however, if you are a fan of musicals, nineteen fifty-four is a pretty big year because you've got Brigadoon, which is Vince Vanelli. You've got Seven Brides or Seven Brothers, which is just this monster hit. And for me, it's worth seeing just for the giant, um, like, kind of wood the, chopping the, when they're yeah, building the, the house. Yeah, the barn raising. It's also, yeah, the bar, it, yeah. It's a dance slash raising a barn. It's also Stanley Donnan. Yeah, and it's Stanley Donnan, who's one of who's one of the all-time greats. But you've also got White Christmas, which is Michael Curtiz. And you've got A Star is Born by George Cukor. And you've got Carmen Jones, the all-black musical, where they're singing opera, but with, like, new language by Otto Preminger. So are either of you guys musical buffs? Because I feel like this is a uh, this is like an embarrassment of riches for music musical buffs. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I mean, um, yes, to, to, to a certain degree. Um, so interestingly, this, this, this was the first remake 
of A Star is Born, and it's the first musical. And every remake since then has been musical. So the original one is just about two and actors. Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the, this one introduces music, um, obviously. Well, Judy Garland's the musical, but obviously James Mason's an actor. Right, he's yeah. an actor, but he discovers her and, uh, you know... Um, it really is, although James Mason is fantastic, it's just this unbelievable tour de force vehicle for Judy Garland's comeback, and she hasn't been on screen in four years. There are people who say this is her iconic role. For me, it's oh, it will always be Wizard of Oz. I mean, there's just no way. Well, here she's a woman, whereas Wizard of Oz, well, I know, she, yeah, she was a girl. I know, but, I, you know, I don't know. Because, I mean, some might say Meet Me in St. Louis. and Yes, no, and, no, no, Meet Me in St. Louis is good, uh, but... But they also Vincent Minnelli, I, I believe. But um, so so this is uh, you know she and she apparently was you know was a little difficult on screen. And the was, pills and the booze had right. the hooks in her, and she got robbed uh, for by the. She uh, didn't get I mean, an Oscar. One, one one of the. I mean, look, the Oscars. Uh, you know, the, it's hard to pick. You know, which are the most egregious and ridiculous. You know, um, I don't. I I don't even. I've never even seen Country Girl. But the, Nor have I. Was it, it Grace it was Kelly? Country Girls, Grace Kelly. But yeah. Grace Kelly was like having this great year right, so where Grace she Kelly's was in, in Rear, Rear Window, Window and Dial M. Murder. Um, but so it was kind of like one of those where right, they gave her but, for the for but, the whole all of it. But, yeah, which is which is one of the really big problems with the Oscars is the, the, the they give you for the narrative as opposed to the Yeah, they're giving yeah. you for like like Scorsese when they gave it to him for The Departed. That's not why he didn't get it for The Departed. Uh, he lost eight other times. Right, or whatever that's why it was. they gave it to yeah, him, the Oscars know. are given for everything but the craft. Right, it's, and <laughs> so and so it doesn't win any movies. In fact. Of the two big Jason, James Mason movies this year, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea wins two Oscars, two, I believe, zero Oscars for A Star is Born, mm. of which it was nominated for everything. Like, it was not, it had like 15 nominations and didn't get any. It yeah. was also a huge hit. It was a huge That's hit. That's the other thing to keep and in mind. It was not a case like one of these Hollywood cases where it's like, oh, it flopped. It was a humongous it's hit. It's a dark, yeah. like, evil movie in a lot of ways when you see just how cruel. Oh, it's Cucor. Yeah. It's not It's not Minnelli. It is Cucor. Yeah, yeah Minnelli it's de Brigadoon. Right, oh, right, right, right. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. this, I mean, this is Cucor really still in, in his prime. I, I, for me, Cucor was at his best in the late 30s, but obviously, Starsborn, his talent is still very much intact. But there is a, a darkness at the core of this movie that's very savage and upsetting to this day like when James Mason is just like making a complete spectacle on, on, mm-hmm. on stage and throws his arms wide and like hits Judy Garland in the face yeah. and she's trying so hard to like recover for him or, and or just cover for him period and just wa- I mean spoiler just watching him wander off into the ocean at the end and killing it's way more profound than Bradley Cooper hanging himself in his garage once yeah. again spoiler alert after yeah. I've spoiled it but I think the death scene in this is way more impactful yeah um, we we and funny enough, we were gonna do this podcast 1954 when um, the 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 remake was sort of still out Kinda, in yeah, theaters. Absolutely, we've been talking about this since October a little yeah. bit, but um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of history to it now. It was you know kind of famously chopped up by the studio and famously unavailable yeah, for a really long time. Exactly, like, like listeners movie. may watch it or people may have watched it after they saw the Bradley Cooper one, and you see this like weird version with still frames. Yeah, because those scenes are gone forever. Right, yeah. those scenes are gone, but it, it actually adds like this weird arty 50s thing to it. I actually think the still frames actually are cool. A dumbass friend of mine in LA was like, man, I saw Star Born. It had this really cool thing where sometimes they're just 
like, there's just no scene. They right. just have a still. I was like, yeah. No, it's because the scenes have been lost to the ravages of the time. He's like, Ugh. Yeah, right. exactly. So people think that was some stylistic to- <laughs> no, choice. I mean, it I was knew, not. I know. It I, was I, like, it was, it was, it was gutted the movie. They recut it. They destroyed a lot of, well, they, the, a lot they of the footage. Started, they started actually shooting it on traditional, you know, the normal uh, ratio. And then, like, halfway through, decided to make it cinemascope. And actually, you had to start over from scratch. So it definitely went like over budget. Um, you know, again, it was a really big hit. And it, and the other interesting thing is a lot of these movies we talk about. So like Johnny Guitar has like five great um, supporting uh, like character actors, mm-hmm. or like we talked about in On the Waterfront. This, I mean, this has James Mason and Judy Garland, and then like. You don't recognize any of these other these other. Like, well, you recognize them as bit players in these studios. From yeah, the, but the, like Charles Right, but they're not. The they're not on the level yeah. of a Lee no. J. Cobb, of an, of an Ernest Borgnine, no, it's not an piece. of a, of a, you know of a, you know yeah of a Ward Bond. You no, know, I this mean, is like, a total star vehicle for those two. Right, and it's those two, and they both bring it. I mean, yeah. they're both really amazing. Um, it's an amazing, yeah, it really is an amazing year for James Mason, these two characters, and then who knows, he probably was in, like, five other movies also. Um, yeah, you know, he, he was definitely yeah. hit, finding his stride, but I think Carmen Jones is also worth mentioning. I mean, oh. pe- people made a big deal about Black Panther when it came out, but, like, for going back to the days of like hallelujah hollywood's been doing these giant like all black spectacles and here you have an update of the opera carmen and it's by you know it's a musical by oscar hammerstein oscar hammerstein or steen however you want to say it but you have dorothy dandridge and harry belafonte it's cinemascope and it's gorgeous 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 technical yeah you want to talk about like black is beautiful on film yeah carmen jones is like is your go-to 100 percent. i've only seen like clips of it like in you know that's entertainment kind of kind of movies but um it look, I always looked a little like you know the white the white people celebrating you know black black you know uh, no I mean it's it, it it's well, Prem and Jerry obviously wasn't sure. from the U S but he in his own way was, he also was dating Dorothy Dandridge and had been for a long time but he was always trying to open doors when it came to depiction of drug use or depiction right. of human sexuality or just black people depiction in depiction was a little. I mean, it's problematic. It, the, well, let's just say like the framing of certain scenes, a lot of times it's just like four people sitting around a microphone singing a song. So it's, it's not like super elaborate in terms of like camera movements and that sort of thing. But there's some great performances and there's some, like, when you hear opera performed by black performers, it's fucking wild. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, based on Carmen, the yeah, opera. opera so. itself is often like the story, the storylines are, you know, a poor young couple are living in a garret. She dies. Like that's Boem, La Boem. Yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like it's like there's not a lot of plot. It's these these elaborate se- scenes of people singing about their feelings. So yeah, Carmen Jones doesn't have a lot of a lot of plot and it's, you know, the classic story of uh Is this the first movie where a black woman, an attractive black woman, appears in her bra and panties on the screen? Oh wow, there you go. Dorothy that Dan- I can't say, but Dor- this is the movie that Dorothy Dandridge was nom she was nominated for and That I don't know. Oh yeah. That- she can sing her fucking sure. ass off. And again, the, the I the, think it, she was nominated. Okay, the like, like, color Cinemascope really works well here, um, with the you know with just not just the sort of skin tones and stuff like that, but just I, I the, the people's bright colors because it's Carmen. You know, it, it works a lot better in this than it does in Johnny Guitar, where people are wearing these like 
canary yellow shirts and red actually, kerchiefs. In and the Wild West, the one thing that gets overlooked is that I don't hate it. No, but in the Wild West, there were a lot of peacocks who love like displaying their wealth, and especially right. like in a gold town. So like, if, and they'd have like weird color combinations. But actually, it was very con- like when we think of like, the Wild West, we think oh everything's sepia tone, everyone's dressed in gray and brown. It actually was the total opposite. You would wear like purple and yellow weird clashing outfits because you wanted to show off like all the wealth you'd made by either you know doing any of the things that were drawing people out to right. the west so seeing these crazy colors in western is actually wildly appropriate I, it's funny because I'm looking at your sweet smell of success poster and it has that 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 technicolor yellow and red in the uh, in in the poster um, I yeah I, I really I've, I've always sort of really liked Carmen Jones um, although it is it yeah I mean a lot of musicals are also I mean musicals in general it's not just opera are not that sophisticated the storyline is I, I tend to hate them unless they mm. have great acrobatics in terms of the dancing like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers when they're you know jumping on these wooden beams and throwing axes around like I like the physical I like the Jackie Chan Buster Keaton type athletic athleticism I really don't care to sit around seeing people singing around well like, a perfect example of that in 54 is White Christmas yeah. is there any reason to go and watch White, White Christmas right now if you want to get nostalgic for the fit, I saw it for the first time ever yesterday. If you are a Bing Crosby person, like the girl um, that uh, Bing Crosby, not the one, not um, not Rosemary Clooney, but the other girl, she's got these crazy lean muscular legs. So if you want to see, she's a Sid Charisse. It's not Sid Charisse. The Sid is in Brigadoon, and she's not the best it's actor. Rosemary Clooney's one. Vera, woman. Vera Ellen. Vera okay. Ellen has these insane legs, but. White Christmas is not my go-to. It's not like, when I think of Michael Curtis, I think of 10, 15, 20 other movies I'd, I'd recommend first. But if you're and also I hate Christmas. Like I fucking despise Christmas. So I'm the last person you want to ask about White Christmas. Right. So that's a pretty major mega movie of So White Christmas is like the only one of these musicals I haven't seen. Right. I mean Brigadoon was supposed to be MGM's big movie and they end up sort of taking continually taking from the budget of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers ends up being this huge hit and Brigadoon is a little bit of a bomb. Brigadoon's the Manali movie. Yeah, exactly. Brigadoon's the Manali movie. It's got it's got the two the two male leads are uh, Gene, Kelly. Gene Kelly and Van Johnson, yeah, yeah, yeah. who actually gives probably his best performance ever in the Kane Mutiny, which is also this also, which is also nineteen. Yeah, yeah, I've got kind of like a weird, just ambiguous Hollywood classics period to, or, or section to get right. to, which I've included because I like I was like it's like the studio system of fifty four, yeah, which is and, like you know these, and that's part of it totally, which is these Bogart movies that well, are that also was, kind of. In the middle here. Well, since you mentioned it, like for me, like Dial In for Murder, Kane Mutiny, Sabrina, Barefoot Contessa, like just this is like kind of the great heyday of Hollywood. Well, Dial M was, you know, first of all, Dial M is is I think of it as very a very minor Hitchcock movie. Yeah, but it's also very, very good. Times called it tingling with excitement. The Detroit News said it's the best crime play in years. The London Daily Mail headlined, a murder thriller with a difference. The New York Daily Mirror wrote, it holds your attention like a vice. Where's the nearest police station? What could you tell them? I should simply tell them that you're trying to blackmail me into... Into? Murdering your wife. Fantastic, isn't it? But you know he's right, don't you, Tony? You've worked it out to the smallest detail. 
And this man is to be your murder weapon for the perfect crime. And you, Margot, you've been living dangerously, too dangerously, a married woman with a two-party line to your affections. And Mark, ironic, isn't it, that in this design for death, you should be selected to be the perfect alibi for the murder of the woman you love. Are you ever going to tell Tony about us? No. I couldn't possibly tell him. Not now. There is evidence, however, that he was blackmailing you. Blackmail? Yes, I'm afraid it's true, Tony. And you suggest that he came in by the window, and we know that he came in by that door. But he can't have come in that way. That door was locked. You could have let him in. I feel like it's really, really It's two guys good. sitting around talking, and I was like sitting like three feet from the screen, hanging upon every word. I'd never seen it prior to preparing for this episode. I got kind of knocked on my ass by Dallin for murder, and I fell in love with it. Yeah, it's I, it's really good. It's, you know, it's it's a classic kind of, you know, um, the, it, it's like an inspector movie that it kind of brings in the classic, inspe- uh, you know, police inspector. It's kind of a chamber piece. It's a British murder mystery. But like when the jig is up and he's totally busted, he's like, all right, well, who wants to have a drink? Like, it's so yeah. Hitchcock. Yeah. Just, no matter what happens in the end, everything's going to end with everybody having cocktails and, like, you know, looking great. And, and kind of what we were talking about before, it was th- a 3D movie. Yeah. So it was also sort of. See, kind I think of, it was an exercise for Hitchcock. The way, like rope and this were both supposed to be three D, and um, yeah, you know, he, he like he. I think he took them as an exercise, and so uh, you know the the the, the, the like familiar swooping Hitchcock exacting it's, camera it's work is bound. not yeah. there because you you have this big sure. clunky three D camera that weighs you know three million pounds or whatever. Um, yeah, it is Grace Kelly. I mean, it's I, Ray Milland. I mean, I love charming, devilish rogues who have an elaborate totally. scheme, and the way he lures in this potential killer, and the way he's plotted everything out, and the way he's planned everything so meticulously. It, this is Ray Milland that is most devilish and delightful. And I, I, it's my, my my grandmother's favorite movie star, so I've always got a little sentimental love and affection for Ray Milland. And it's also pretty gross, like when the killer gets stabbed with a scissor uh, and yeah. when he falls, and, and the he scissors has go spasms, up, up and then, yeah, the scissors go into his back. Sure, that's pretty hardcore i've seen it in 3d too and, and also it's got an intermission it's only an hour 40 yeah. minutes long but it's like we're an hour in intermission like why like yeah what? i mean i think it's underrated <laughs> yeah. at this point i, I think, think it, well i've been sleeping on it for yeah. well over 20 years and like kind of putting it off because i was like oh well, it's no one ever talks about it uh, and maybe it's just because hitchcock was so goddamn good that even when he's not making rear window he still delivers a movie that's head and shoulders above it's it's a lot of its peers i, I, I think that's actually a really important statement like a, a, a not great hitchcock movie is better than almost any other director not great you know like it's, it's better than a not great fellini movie it's it's certainly better than a not great, you know, Coppola Although movie. Although Torn Curtain's pretty lousy. Yeah, Torn Curtain's, <laughs> but there's one, there's there's like one or two or three just duds. 
But um, there are quite a bit that people don't talk about frenzy. that are really. Oh, well, frenzy is like the most underrated. Yeah, it's other. amazing. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll go back and, and I've seen, you know, I've seen I've seen uh, Dial in for Murder a couple of times and I hadn't seen. It's not one that I rewatched for this. So I'll, I'll go back and check that out. I remember it feeling like it's sort of like, a you know, a lesser Hitchcock. Well, but, yeah, but it's still really well right. done. If you and, like murder stories, I feel like people yeah. love like Ag- Agatha Christie novels totally. and things like that. If you're because I feel like there used to just be like this fan base that were just buffs for murder stories. Yeah. And it's I feel like this is like, yeah, oh, they're the, still there. For, it's the, the Agatha Christie, that you know, true crime, and that, that kind of you know, Brit- thing is out there. Right. But it's more like the British, you know, yes. kind of murder. And there's an inspector who comes and you can't who's unflappable you know he and that's the john williams character and he's great in it so i mean it's pretty pretty solid hell yeah i I agree it was it was a of the movies that i saw in preparation for this episode that one just absolutely delighted me there are a couple like i'm I'm always burnt out on movies i'm always like kind of like Please. Oh, you do you, do you like movies? Uh, so there are times where I question whether or not I still do, but there are a couple that really jumped out at me while preparing. And Dial In for Murder was one. Crime Wave by Andre de Toth was another. Where I was like, I'm just, I'm just a fan, stuffing yes. popcorn on their face with a big smile on their face, just enjoying the magic of movie making, the magic of storytelling. And so there are a handful of flicks like that throughout my preparation where I just got to be the audience again, and I always relish those moments when they, when they take place. Nice, but I don't think Dial M is like in should be grouped with all those like big studio productions. Yeah, it's not Sabrina. You know? it, it's, it's not it, Kane Mutiny. It's yeah. not Barefoot Contessa. But these I, are like I, these I kind big. Of know where to place it? Right, right. Um, it's more like a small British crime, you know, kind of cheeky droll kind of movie but there are not a lot of others no other movies I, know, that I, kind of, I, I didn't know where to place this so i was like fuck it i'm just gonna lump them all together because hollywood doesn't really make these anymore like the non-genre specific just dramas well especially now they're just I dying mean, on the yeah, vine but yeah, back yeah, then now, like movies I mean, like sabrina that that was that was like the go-to hollywood movie these shoot like these they weren't quite romantic comedies they weren't like musicals they're just these love stories and dramas that were just like hollywood's bread and butter right well sabrina is i mean in some ways sabrina is is a rom-com yeah. you know i oh, mean sabrina's is. yeah sabrina's a pretty major movie from 54 but and, when i think of like billy water comedies like, yeah nothing can eclipse like the apartment and something I, I agree yeah and so it's for me it's it's tier two billy wilder but it's, I, it's, but it's even still, that's it's, even kind but I it's feel. still billy wilder yeah it's, it's still bogey it's still william holden it's still audrey hepburn I mean, it's still audrey hepburn it's still you know audrey hepburn in 54 i mean yeah, yeah i mean this is still she's still an ingenue i mean yeah you know, she's really young and she's right. with these like old well, know, that's the, i was gonna say that's what's pretty <laughs> sleazy so uh, like, it was so sleazy you know well both holden and and bogart are you know i mean but, but i mean the Different times and so on and so forth, but then the early fifties or mid fifties, girls would get married like at sixteen, seventeen all the time, and uh, it, it was not uncommon. And you, giant age disparities were much more common. I, mean, I know now everyone's like, you know, like talking about ageism and blah blah blah. But I, I don't get any creepy vibes off Sabrina whatsoever. Well, she was all right. She was twenty five when she did that movie, which in nineteen fifty four was like forty. Yeah, fine, but Bogart and, and Holden are probably both, you know. Oh, Bogart was old as hell. Yeah. When Bogart got married to um, Lauren Bacall, she was 19, he was like 42 or 43. Right, exactly. And that was years of... Lauren <laughs> acting like a, a woman. Like, Lauren Bacall's whole thing... No, no, no. <laughs> like, Sabrina... No, I mean, like, Audrey Hepburn's whole thing is that she's, she's like, innocent. girlish. Right, yeah, innocent. Right. Lauren Bacall is coming out and everything Deep that voice, comes out of her mouth smoking. is like, yeah, is is like sexual double on Talking about blowjobs. 
right. Yeah, exactly. Like and like and yeah, literally talking about blowjobs while smoking cigarettes and doing stuff with her mouth. She was still like, nineteen. I, mean, yeah. I know, but 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 it's a different nineteen. I mean, she was a fast nineteen, and Audrey Hepburn was this you know Belgian like 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 raised by nuns and like, I mean just like this whole like you know. So Bogart was fifty five and fifty four. Right. Yeah. So Bogart's fifty five. She's twenty five. I mean, there's definitely a sleazy side like and and you know they're a little old i mean the two guys are a little old i don't know who well william holden was considerably younger right yeah, but he but not much younger yeah i mean yeah. He, looks, and he was he aged quickly because of the booze i mean by the time we get the wild bunch he looks 90 but he was like 40 something like he's you know william holden just had a, a, a rough life because he just he loved to drink all day every day yeah another another you know i don't want to shout out to 57 again but Bridge of the, uh, uh, on the River Kwai is 57. Yeah, and he looks... He looks pretty good. 10, 15 years yeah. older than he does in Sabrina by the time you get to Bridge That's on true. the River Kwai. I mean, That's he's true. like, he's aging visibly in real time. It's true. Before. I mean, Sabrina is really good and it is the kind of thing, it's the kind of star vehicle that we don't have today that's like just like a well-done romantic movie like, say, Tootsie. Yeah. Like, you movies know like what Meet I mean? Black. I mean, Tootsie's better than Sabrina. Movies like Meet Joe Black, though, kind of killed that genre, though. Right. Yeah, but also they they lost the audience for that. You yeah. know, they, that's that's well, the, the older it, audience that doesn't go to movie theaters. It's not just that. They moved the audience to that move. Like, why would you go to the theaters when you can watch Friends or... Or whatever, whatever on The Netflix. Office or, you know, whatever on it's Netflix. usually the like, old, older, you know, couples or middle older women who have maybe have kids. So it's harder to I don't know. Put, I saw when Harry but, met Sally but on a date classy, in high school. But classy right. relationship dramas have completely gone out of fashion. But in the 50s, they were like the Avengers. Yes. They were huge, right. huge movies. But I would argue they're still there. They're just now on sitcoms and on Netflix and on these like, you know, yeah. now these but like they don't six... Drive, they don't drive the culture. No, like they don't. They definitely don't. I, I, I do agree. I mean, like, what, like, would Meg Ryan even have a career today? You know? No. She'd have right. to be the Wasp. Right. right. Or, exactly. She'd be on TV. Yeah. Exactly. But a Another 54 movie that kind of fits in this category is the Douglas Sirk movie, Magnificent Obsession. Absolutely. Which I have not seen. I love oh, Sirk, really? but I've only seen his later stuff. So I've seen two Sirk movies, and which one is Magnificent Obsession? Magnificent. All right. So is that the Sirk one that- is like the one that, like, you know, he does these melodramas. They're really lush. They're really beautiful. A lot of filmmakers now rip them off. Todd Pe- Haynes. Like Todd Haynes, yeah. you know, and they're yeah. usually these kind of soapy Far women's from pictures. Was a remake of All That Heaven Right. Allows. So the good ones are All That Heaven Allows. Allows, imitation of life and written, written on the, on the wind. wind. Yeah. Those are right. the three good ones. I, right, those are the three that I've and seen. And then right, and then it starts going off big time with from there. And Magnificent Obsession is kind of right second tier. Second this tier. Is, that's not Magnificent Obsession is not the oil one, right? Like it's, it's not. I know one of them definitely has no. features. Magnificent of, Obsession is absurd. It is totally absurd. It's about this woman who gets in a wreck uh, because of a speedboat accident. And then she uh, she goes blind, oh, and then Rock Hudson falls in love I with don't her, know this one. and then Rock Hudson, you know, helps her get back on her feet. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's like this rich guy, and he's now gonna go to the woman that he caused this accident to with. It's it's. Um, it's it's not great. Um, I think it's just not a great place to start with with Douglas Sirk, but it is indicative of this period. And it's the much. beginning. I mean, the 1950s was the great heyday of the lurid melodrama on the big screen, and then they moved to like soap operas on TV and that sort of thing. But if you want to see movie, glamorous movie stars doing melodramas, the 50s was your bread and butter. Yeah, and it also looks like some of these other movies that we've brought up, which is you know visually it's beautiful, the colors are really yeah. lush and. and 
incredible. So like whether, you know, it's Johnny Guitar or one of, some of the musicals, like the color in, in Written on the, or Magnificent Obsession is really incredible. Well, speaking of color in this period, there's a really unusual one that I just discovered. For, I've been meaning to watch this for decades, but William Wellman, you know, of Public Enemy fame, has a Western here called Track of the Cat with Robert Mitchum, which is shot in color to look like a black and white movie. It's in the snow and it's like he's got a red coat on so he's the only color but it's basically this great like Jack London survival story where he's looking for this giant cat that keeps eating on their crops and almost never do you even realize you're watching a color movie unless you're seeing his giant red coat but it's just it's black trees with white snow and it's really cool and in the back of the house it intercuts with this like drama there's a drama going because yeah. his mom's totally psycho and like there's a religious maniac and making everybody's life hell and so there's like a, a pot boil pot boiling over, over on the home front while Robert Mitchum is off dying in the snow trying to kill this giant cat and it's you know for William Wellman completionists I recommend it but for me the big western of well you got two three strong contenders for the best western of oh, this yeah, year oh yeah let's go western Johnny oh. Guitar's in the mix Far Country's in the mix and Vera Cruz is in the mix which means you got Nicholas Ray Robert Aldrich and Anthony Mann all brilliant directors in their own in their own way and it's a really strong year and make I, your case my personal favorite is the Far Country Towering mountains hid its gold. Icy glaciers guarded its passes. But in 1896, the gold rush to Dawson and the Klondike became one of the great adventures of history. They came by boat and pack horse. They came to dig and fight and love and die. The strong came and the weak. The bad and the good. And sometimes it was hard to tell which was which. Who'd you kill? Two men. Seems like a man ought to have a right to leave. He wants to leave. I figured they shouldn't ought to turn back and taken my cattle with them. <laughs> Starring James Stewart, who learned in bullets and blood that no man can live for himself alone. Ruth Roman, who knew men and how to use them. Corinne Calvay, wiser than her years. And Walter Brennan and John McIntyre in the epic saga of a far frontier, excitingly photographed on location, amid the scenic grandeur of Canada's northern mountains. Look, I'm pulling out and you're going with me. We do well together. I'll take your guns and work out a fair trial for you. Take them. Now, hold on, Rube. Now, there just isn't any reason for a man getting himself killed if he doesn't have to. Now, why don't you go back to the nice people before you get hurt? because Anthony Mann changed the Western forever in the 50s by introducing much more psychologically complex characters. The white hat, black hat, 
era was over as far as you're concerned. It was shades of gray, moral ambiguity. Everybody's kind of in it for themselves. Everybody's kind of a bastard. And Jimmy Stewart started playing these mean, nasty, just gnarly bastards. He's nasty in it. And he's really nasty in this. He's one of the nastiest guys in the movie, even though he's the titular hero of the film. And I just find this whole psychological Western period by Anthony Mann to be utterly riveting and they, they kept working together again and again and again like you mentioned Naked Spur or movies like Man from Laramie but Far Country is a strong strong western that I strongly recommend it's a weird one too because it takes place in, <laughs> in your eyes closed it does put you to sleep talking <laughs> oh, wow. about westerns you know drinking <laughs> no, and he's sleeping no, I had one drink okay we put him to sleep the other Far, two yeah. The Far no, Country no, did was, it. The no, Far Country. I was just thinking about Vera Cruz. That's all. <laughs> oh, I closed Vera my eyes Cruz for a second. I have put people to sleep. Very fa- my, fam- my favorite story about putting someone to sleep on um, the film Hannibal. I was driving Ridley Scott to the airport. We were having a three day weekend, and I was just like, "Oh my god! Like your movies mean so much to me. Like I've seen Blade Runner all these times." And I was just going on and on and on. And I was in the middle of a sentence, and I heard, <laughs> "That's amazing." And Ridley Scott was just passed out, bored beyond description, dead to the that world. I've actually amazing. seen all the the man. Uh, yeah. You, you, it's uh, kind Jimmy of a Stewart minor ones. man, right, but it's but, one of the later ones. But there's like ones. six of them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I a bunch seen of them. Man of from them. Laramie. He went, yeah. he went from film noir into westerns into historical epics. And again, because eventually he got to like El Cid and like follow the Roman Empire. Right. But the transitions of Anthony Mann's career are fascinating because he did all these genres, but he kind of did a bunch of film noir, a bunch of westerns, and a bunch of epics. And then he died. He died pretty pretty young. The, the Far Country is weird because it, it first of all, it has a lot of scenes in... Um, like on a on a riverboat, like there, it, it takes place. It opens out on a riverboat. Yeah, it's up. At, well, they're moving yeah. to Alaska, to, and, they're, and, they're, they're, and then in their scenes in Alaska. Yeah, they're they're selling their they're selling their herd in Alaska. Yeah. and when they arrive, their herd is uh, is claimed by a corrupt judge, and this corrupt judge is even more of a bastard than Jimmy Stewart's character, and it's all about. Yeah, just to what degree are people going to be have control over their own lives or live under the thumb of this corrupt judge who like has limitless power in this environment? And uh, Walter Brennan's in there, and yeah. a lot of people getting shot in the back. Just people being mean as fuck, and that, just the meanness of the Anthony Mann westerns make it feel quite different from the '40s westerns. It's still, I mean, it's definitely still a shock to see uh, Jimmy Stewart acting in that way in yeah. this movie. I mean, yeah. he's real, and he's in a real the same bastard. year that yeah. he's, you know, that he's in you playing know, Glenn, Miller. Window yes. Glenn Miller, Glenn Miller, yeah. yeah. I mean, Jimmy Stewart's having a very good year this year. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure there's any women who are not prostitutes in, in the far country. Actually, right. in the far country, the main female character, she's like a cattle baroness and a titan of industry, and she is not sucking cock for All money. Right. No, but she would have been. So, yeah, right. But part of part of one of the things that's amazing is that Hollywood did with the Western is they cre- I mean, like, cowboys were like garbage men. I mean, they were not like these knights of the of the of the plane. And I, and that's no offense to garbage men. I'm just saying like they they had a job and and there really is this golden age of them for like 20 30 years. The Hollywood creates this mythology around them that is like the samurai and the ronin and the you know and the and you know. But I would argue Anthony Mann undercuts those myths yeah. by showing the moral complexity of these characters. Right. You would see in the 40s white hats and black hats yes. tales well, of good that's, and evil. That brings us to another movie which I think would be my pick for the Western. And we, Johnny Guitar. No, yeah. oh. no, Vera Cruz. Oh, which is killer. It's yeah. fucking, it, it So, rocks. I mean, I think if you asked, if you polled a thousand, you know, big film pe- film heads, they'd all say that the greatest Western of 1954 was, without a doubt, Johnny Guitar. But I think, 
I don't know. Johnny Guitar feels a little dusty. It feels a little. I you know it's it funny because when we campy. originally yeah. when we originally talked, I think we had the opposite point of view. I was like, yeah, Johnny Guitar sucks. Forget that. Yeah, oh, I love and like Johnny and now Guitar. having just rewatched it a couple of days ago, I was like, no, wow, this is really good. But I was watching it like totally through this like gender thing sure. and like the idea of of the the you know two women and like the guys almost being like the guys being the women like the guys are sort of. Just just there, you know, as potential love interests for the women. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's really interesting and really well done. You know, I'm just going to give a shout out to Veracruz. No, I, I, I'm with you on Veracruz, though. I like Veracruz more. I just want to say that I, I'm really glad that I got to see Johnny Guitar again in the context of it's, this. It's a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. Veracruz, I mean, look, Bert. Bur- so Veracruz, uh, I'll just tee you up on it. Veracruz was 50, you know, it was Robert Aldrich who did some incredible movies, you know, Dirty Dozen, et cetera, et cetera. And it's Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster, and they're really both just kind of bastards in it. It takes place in Mexico. And well, a lot of just taking advantage of the political turbulence. Yeah. A lot of people cite it as a precursor to Leone movies, to spaghetti westerns, to modern westerns, um, how it's shot, how it's got moral ambiguity, how it has no heroes, how everybody's terrible. Um, and it's really, you know, it's not it's not as great as like like a great Leone movie, but it's definitely um it's just it's really incredible. And, and Lancaster's great in it too. Also because he's playing slightly a more a slightly more morally degenerate person than Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper obviously it's hard to have Gary Cooper play a, a mean person in a movie because he's so lovable and he's like in this he's like speaking French and like woo- yeah. wooing women off their feet and that sort of thing. But the fact that they I love movies where buddies who are on par with each other in terms of being badasses inevitably are going to have to throw down. And by the end, sure enough, boom, you had this killer shootout. And a Gary great yeah. Yeah, shootout. Yeah, so it's got that, fi- that final shootout. Yeah, that's like a Leone movie. But you've seen them compete early on. They're at this party, and they're basically... Because the question is, do we side with the rebels, or do we side with the existing kind of... Uh, you know, Junta or whatever who's yeah, in like charge. Yeah, like, like the Spanish royalty, etc. And they have this shooting contest at a party, and you see that Burt Lancaster and Gary Cooper are like neck and neck and you don't quite know who's going to win if it comes down to a knockdown drag out brawl and yeah it's delightful I feel like it feels if you watch it and you didn't know 54 you would think it's a mid late apart from the fact that Gary Cooper's still alive but you would think it's a mid late 60s western not an early mid 50s I'm going to even western. take that even further you'd think it might be a peck and paw movie if you just sort of watched it and were dropped in like a ride like, the high country yeah era. like yeah. not obviously not Wild Bunch or, or one of his greats but you'd be like wait is cause, could this be some movie from the 60s that's a peck and paw movie how it looks it's style well, it's really the bunch, it's really they do the same dark. thing yeah. they go to work for Mapache totally. who's total son of a bitch and here you have them also working for total sons of bitches and also for Gary Cooper he fought on the side of the south and he's tired of losing war so for him he's all about he wants to be on the winning side of a war for a change but morally and ethically he's feeling a kinship with the rebels so he's in this interesting moral kind of predicament and yeah I think it's uh, I think it's way stronger than Apache the other Robert Aldrich yeah cluster. it uh, is uh, and the- it also it doesn't um, it doesn't pull its punches like uh, Charles Bronson's in it and he's I mean literally he's like, also he, in Crime Wave yeah. yeah but he like practically like rapes this woman like on, on I mean it's crazy Charles Bronson's also in Apache Oh, he's in that as well? Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he, he, he plays, plays the, but he, in Crime Wave he has a, he has a big yes, juicy no, meaty no, part no, no, yeah I 
I, you know, it's funny. I, I saw Apache as a kid, and 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 I really liked it. Like I saw it on TV. Apache's like, pretty good. You know, I gotta say, but so Apache is also another Burt Lancaster, Robert Robert Aldrich Aldrich's movie, movie yeah. of the same year. And like, you know, we should point out. I mean, it's 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 Burt Lancaster playing, you know, an Apache, and Burt Lancaster like is not. Burt Reynolds is Navajo Joe in the Gorbucci film. Right. He's I mean, in I, Red Face. Uh, yeah, he's in Red Face. I, you know, um, Paul Newman is my favorite actor. Burt Lancaster <laughs> is the close second. And so he's a stud. Um, you know, he really, uh, you know, they're two very different roles in, 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 in Apache. He's kind of the last Apache. Yeah. It's, a, the, it's after the surrender. He's, right. So he's the last one who refuses to go and give up and go to the. And in fact, they capture him a couple of times. He escapes. And all he wants to do is go, like, grow corn and hang out with his lady and have a baby and, you know. Just be free. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, for 54, it's a pretty pro-Indian movie. Oh, all the way. Yeah. And it employs shitloads of Native Americans. Yeah, exactly. That's what's so annoying is that, like, Burt Lancaster and, um, you know, there's, like, three or four actors who you know, white guys in red face, and then everyone else is an actual Indian. Although that's all. But there were the movie case. stars. I mean, this is a star-driven system. No, I, I get yeah. it. I mean, I, I I absolutely get it. The thing is, there's others where like so. Burt Lancaster is like Chato in in uh, not Burt Lancaster. Uh, um, what, what's uh, Charles Bronson plays Chato, who's like half Indian, you know, in another movie. So it's like I feel like you you know, it's a little it's a little less egregious through 2019 eyes when they're playing like, you know, half, uh, you know, like a half Indian, half white guy or whatever. Mm. But look, I mean, I'm not going to I, you know, I, I, I think, it, you know, it's worth pointing out like Burt Lancaster's in red face, but he does a great job. He plays um, it with sincerity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's again for fifty four, it's a pretty pro Indian movie. I mean, John um Ford gets credit for being like a relatively pro Indian director. But Cheyenne Autumn was ten years later. Yeah, exactly. And you look at like the treatment of look in uh in uh in in um the searchers and it's horrific. I mean, Star. She's, you yeah. know, she's, you know, like they, she's played completely for like physical laughs in like this, you know, it's really doesn't age well at all. So I, you know, I think, uh, and I, and I also, I'm a very big Aldrich fan and he, or Roger, uh, he, he has done every genre and he does them really well. Yeah, I mean, do... 20 years later, he's going to do Alsana's Raid, also with Lancaster. Yes, exactly. And it's also Did he awesome. do Semi-Tough with Burt Reynolds as yes. well? No, he did Longest Yard. Longest Yard, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that might be, that's one of his last movies. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. That guy had such a weird career. Didn't Robert Altridge do, uh, what, what, happened what happened to Baby, Baby Jane? Jane? Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, oh, yeah, Kiss Me Deadly. Kiss Me Deadly. I mean, you know, so this guy is like, he's a B-direct, he might be the greatest of the B-directors and the, you know, like his, you know, he's not as weird as Sam Fuller, but like who's got hell and high water this you year? You know, I'll tell you what his. Uh, oh, oh, really? Hell and high water. His Cold War era submarine film, which I saw at the Cinematheque in L.A. when I was first getting in. But this that movie was so beloved by Spielberg, he kept a print in the trunk of his car for years so he could show it to people because it was so obscure and so unknown. But if you want to see a great cinemascope submarine picture decades before fucking Hunt for the Red October or any of that sort of thing check out Hell and High Water wow there is a good sub movie from the 50s though I mean it's not that's not Hell or High Water the um the one where the, there is a very good and it, and it was in one of the other years that we were talking about doing hmm. um, that no that's got a list stars in it um, like oh it's got Clark Gable run silent run deep. run silent run deep's really good it's just the problem with run silent run deep is the it, it all gets wrapped up like the climax is very good but yeah so Aldrich had three movies this year yep that's Crazy. that's that's unbelievable I mean it's like and you know the sub movies are hard to do. 
um you know like uh, if you know do right especially but um yeah i mean uh burt lancaster and in, 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 in what a what a great you know veracruz and and apache two totally different uh you know, different different performances. And as I mentioned before, Andre the Toth had two westerns, but the one that I've seen is Bounty Hunter. If you're a Randolph Scott fan and if you like westerns, of course you are. I have not seen Bounty, Bounty Hunter. Bounty Hunter is basically he just rides in the. T- he's, a, he's a bounty hunter, obviously. And he, there's a town that has a horrible secret where these guys who robbed a bunch of money a while back, basically this whole town is protecting these guys, and he has to basically dismantle this entire city in order to get his uh, get his bounty. But as I mentioned before, it's got uh, Marie uh, Marie Windsor in there as a great femme fatale, and she's she's incredible. Um, just weird forgotten gems from this era that I really mm. like. Weird obscure sci-fi flick from Britain, Devil Girl from Mars, which is very Don't famous for the look of the villain. But Mars had a war a long time ago where the women won, but they've run out of proper like male seed or genetic material. So this girl's come to Scotland to look to look for men, and every, pretty much every single scene begins and ends with a bunch of guys in a pub like drinking scotch trying to figure out what, what to do. But just for the look of the of the villain. It's uh, it's worth a look. They should oh, end, I wanna... they should end that together with Brigadoon, which we didn't really talk about, but that's a Scott the Scottish musical. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I got a couple good foreign films we haven't mentioned. Late late on us. Grisby. I haven't even heard of this. What I, is that? I don't know Grisby either. Hey, what's what's Grisby? You guys haven't heard of it? Enlighten us. Uh, so it's uh, the Jacques Becker uh, crime movie from '54. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, you got to say the whole title. I'm sorry. Yeah. I saw it at the New York. So I... please do it for us. Oh, oh, no, I saw it 22 years ago, and apart from having Jean Gabin there, yes. I have zero memory. I remember oh, really? I went super baked and I remember telling my boss at the time, uh, Tom McNulty, that I was going to go see that movie and he was like, he's like, you're way too into movies, you're weird, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I went to the New York, I got super high, watched it, loved it. Yeah. But have just, it was not, summer so, night, okay, yeah, yeah it's no not memory. pronounced Grisby. I'm just, I'm, I'm being an American, Americanizing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's a, um, a um, I remember seeing it in the early 2000s. I think I had seen maybe like Rafifi or one of those movies and somebody be like, Oh, you've, this is the one you got to see as well. And it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, it, 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 it maybe like imagine like the De Niro character in heat, you yep. know, and he's now like he runs like an a, aging thief. Yeah, and he's kind of like runs like a nightclub, and he's the French like, do this so well. Yeah, and he he kind of like not like sort of Bob Laflambeur is. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It, I'd say Bob Laflambeur stole from this movie. Right, and okay. it's Jean Gabin. Right, uh, thank you. The, the French John, the French John Wayne, and um, you know he he um, he's gonna like sell like his gold, and then there's a young guy that's gonna gonna rat him out and. It's all shot in this kind of like really kind of elegant French style. It's really beautiful. No, nothing to look cooler at. than a French crime film. Um, it doesn't. It's not all gritty at all. It's not like a noir, like a an, an, like you a know, American noir. It's like a really sort of beautiful. It's almost like a Renoir, like glamorous. Yeah, and um, it's a good one. So uh, th- I, that's definitely one of the one of the one of the neat ones from from Jock Becker. I, I never quite know whether or not these films should be considered farm films or not because they are from overseas. But in the UK, you got David Lean doing Hobson's Choice, very funny flick with Charles Lawton. And Total like, har- foreign film. Yeah, it's, but it's, I always say like, far, like in the Academy is foreign language film, and obviously Hobson's Choice is uh, in English. But it, for there were, for a year that we sadly don't have a whole lot of great comedy to work with Hobson's Choice is actually pretty goddamn funny yeah I think it's also like the great 
you know, when people think about Charles Lawton and think about like what he was like, that's the movie that they're sort of thinking about. You know, they might be thinking about, um, you know, obviously he did all this great, these great other films, but Spartacus. Yeah. I mean, sort of, you know, obviously he's done so many great things, but the, the, um, the witness for the prosecution, Charles Lawton, like the one who's this kind of like British, larger you know, than larger life, than life yeah. character. That's very Hobson's choice, where he plays this father of all these of all these. Um, he's like a shoe salesman or something. Is that what it is? He's a shoe salesman. Well, yeah, no, see, his he's, his daughter, his is, daughters are getting is, married. Is grooming kind of a simpleton, and she's trying to look after him and kind of build him into the man she wants him to be. But Hob- he basically Charles Lawton wants his girls to look after him and take care of him so he can get shit faced and just fuck around. Yeah, and uh, they kind of disapprove upon his lifestyle of, of his lifestyle. He's and, a drunk. Yeah, and he's always like, yeah, having these like weird fantasy sequences where he's like falling down holes and things like that but eventually his daughter does rise to the challenge and helps groom uh, a successor and they basically are able to take on their tyrannical father as an equal but people don't associate comedy with David Lean ever but Hobson's Choice is an unusual little gem in his overall film yeah the one of the daughters marries this like hick and that he you know the father played by Charles Lawton sort of you know can't can't believe that this is going to be his son-in-law yeah, he's fathoms he, beneath yeah her. it's good stuff it's yeah. very fun Funny. Um, but and it's also this kind of beautiful David Lean. It looks beautiful. It's well shot. Yeah, it's this really is before Bridge on the River Kwai, before yeah. he embraces the epics, before Summertime, so he hasn't embraced color yet. But as long as we're talking about foreign films, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but Luis Buñuel, yet another one of these guys that I put up there with Fellini, Kurosawa, all these guys. Robinson Crusoe is so different from the rest of his filmography. I always forget, forget this movie even exists. But it is a very loving, affectionate adaptation of this novel from like what, like the 1720s it's or the 30s? first novel. It's considered to be the first novel. Some say Cervantes, uh, Don Miguel, Don Quixote. Oh, I don't know, which I, is like 1603. Yeah. Right, and I th- and I th- yeah, okay. I all right. So maybe it's the first English English language. But it's an novel. Er- early early novel. But yes. man, you want to see? If, I mean, people talk about dumbass movies like Castaway, which I fucking despise. Watch Robinson Crusoe instead, and you will have a delightful time. It bears no resemblance to movies like Viridiana and things like that. Like his like early 60s movies that are so beautiful and so wonderful and it has nothing to do with like even like uh, Los Olvidados which is right around the same period but I I think Buñuel is if you wanted to have a, a list of like five titans of cinema, and for me, he would always make that list no matter what. He's up there yeah, with Bourbon and these other guys. It's a curio. Yeah. I mean, I it's such a curio that I remember like in the late 90s, early 2000s, like people like trying to track this movie down. It was re- hard to find. really it's hard to find. It did play on TV because I did see it in like the late 70s, early 80s as a very young child. And it sort of stayed with me. So one of the things I you don't realize, like I've never actually read Robinson Crusoe. I was assigned it, but I did not read it. His, his <laughs> nice. you know, it's very interesting. So he's like down on his luck and he leaves Brazil his job that he takes is to actually oversee a slave shipment. And, like, that gets, gets kind of lost. he enslaves his best friend right, in yeah, the story. Friday. Yeah, 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 yeah. His, his best friend calls him master th- throughout, right. throughout the story. Um, but in 1720, when this novel was written... I know. Yeah, Slaves, it was a, it was a, different, was a different everywhere. Era. Yeah. But it's an interesting, it's sort of an interesting, like if they remake Robinson Crusoe today, they will definitely change that. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, well, you like, just, hey, you what just, are you doing, Robinson? I'm off to buy some slaves. Yeah, that's not going to be the <laughs> but case. Also, and his, not to defend uh, someone who owns a slave, but this is a guy who is a cannibal who's coming to, like, to eat him, who ends up like capturing and, right. and like civilizing and educating and that sort of thing. And like oftentimes he has to like have him like chained up at night because he doesn't want to be this guy's dinner. So right. he's dealing with um, somebody who in, he comes from an island nearby that he can see where on any given night they might come over and make him dinner. 
And end of dinner, I should say. I mean, and, and Robinson Crusoe would, would, was this the first time that Robinson Crusoe had been filmed? Do you know? I'm, there, I mean, not I'm, sure. It's a, once again, always risky to say that because in the silent era, you can always say, "Oh, what's yeah. the earliest Shakespeare?" And like every year, they find right. yet no, another no, no, earlier course. version. Yeah. So it, there very well could be. No, I mean, it turns out that there were caveman movies in like 1906. I mean, it's really nuts how like they did they they did everything in the silent era. Like you just don't really realize it. And of course, you know, you would never have had Robinson Crusoe on Mars without Robinson Crusoe. Well, I'm just now realizing that when it comes to what I saw for the first time in preparation for this episode and my little themes and topics, I've actually oh my last one on the list. Oh wow! This is I love animation. Animal Farm came out this year. Oh, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And it's a really good adaptation. It is. Except for the very last few seconds where they changed the ending. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, you can't change the ending of fucking Animal Farm. Mm. Wait. They're looking in the windows and they can't tell the difference between the pigs and the... That's the end of the novel. Yeah. And in the cartoon, after they realize that the pigs are becoming just as bad and tyrannical as their human masters, they have yet another uprising. But for me, that ruins the lesson of the story. Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. You need the cautionary tale. See, I... All right. So I actually saw that for the first time as a double feature with... um, uh, the Lord of the Rings, the the animated Lord of the Rings, <laughs> oh, the gotcha. over the Bakshi uh, Lord of the Rings, and I saw those as a double feature, um, and you know I I was really young and clearly the Lord of the Ring, but the Animal Farm really stayed with me, and the animation is quite cool in it's it. It's gorgeous. It's kind of old fashioned. It's old fashioned, yeah. but it's really old fashioned, good. cool. But has way more teeth yeah. than an animated movie from the fifties than you would expect. Because you think oh fifties animation, it's going to be fun for the whole family, but you have. All the nastiness of the book, like when, like, uh, what's it, um, Snowflake or Snowball gets chased off by the yeah, dogs by the, yeah. and eaten. He's getting, yeah, he's getting, like... And when you see, um, what's the name of the horses? Boxer. Boxer. Yeah, when, when Boxer gets shipped off to be turned right, into Right, he's, glue. like, trying to kick his way out, and they're, yeah. like, Boxer kicked, you know, whatever, and he's too no weak punches. at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the horror... The hor- like I read that, like, in uh, eighth grade for school, and I remember it's a, it's a quick, easy read, but also it has devastating impact. The cartoon pulls no punches. All the best scenes hmm. from, the car- from the book are there, but they had this small little twist to make it slightly more positive but in a way it undercuts the whole idea of you know the people leading the revolution becoming the new oppressive powers that be and I'm like how fucking dare you and it's basically just watch the movie and then just press stop in the last few seconds it won't get ruined all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than (laughs) others absolutely you know yeah and like no no animal will sleep in a bed with sheets right exactly yeah, they keep yeah. New it, rules. it's really i animal animal form is really special um and uh i you know i actually i don't think i've seen that the animated film again since i was a kid and then they did a live action one in like the 90s which i saw maybe even the early aughts which i saw which was interesting because it was a live action animal form but it just wasn't the same you know i remember the yeah that animation there's that 50s there's a beautifully restored version of available for free on youtube i mean it looks like someone took a blu-ray and just transferred it and uploaded to youtube but it's immaculate and it looks like it came out yesterday so yeah i strongly recommend people give it a look if you're and it's short it's like an hour and 15 minutes long you can you can rip right through it so we didn't we didn't really talk about the cane mutiny 
No. Well, I, I love the K Mutiny. We we tackled it on an episode called uh, "Getting Fubar with the Hellbent for Horror." But I saw that in the theater at the sun, at the Lamley Sunset Five in L.A. during a Humphrey Bogart festival, and the K Mutiny fucking rocks. It's it's a killer flick. It's what Edward Dimitrik who, who directed yep. it. But uh, since I've had spoken a piece on it in the past, lay it on us. Oh no, I mean I just want. I mean, I you know it's a great Bogart performance, a great underrated Bogart performance. One where, of his best. You know, um, he's a, a captain on a ship who kind of loses it. I mean, it's it's basically like Trump right now. Like, you know, he's lost it. Looking for those um, strawberries. Yeah, like nobody, you know, and, and, and nobody really knows how to ta- how to take him out of command or whatever. And um, it, it, it's sort of obvious on the outside, like someone's got to do something. And it's sort of like how we look at the White House and we're like, well, why isn't anyone doing something? Why aren't they doing the 25th, you know, amendment or whatever, you know, to, get, you know, call him crazy and get him out of there or whatever. And he, there's a lot of really good performances. He gives a really good performance. So Van Johnson, who is in Brigadoon, the other guy in Brigadoon, gives perhaps the best performance of his career. Mm-hmm. And Van Johnson is one of these guys who was like had to remain closeted, and like the studio made him marry Esther Williams, and then she outed him after he died. But like he got into a really bad car accident, and the only time he was ever allowed to not wear all this heavy makeup in a movie was in the Cane Mutiny. Interesting. And it's because he's a soldier, and it's like, you know, there's fires on these ships all the time. Huh. And it's like, you know, like, it, and so, it, it, you know, and... um. And he he gives a and he's not even like the main like you know like he's Fred like, McMurray's one of the main like Jose the fourth, Ferrer. He's like the fourth or fifth yeah. like banana, but um, but I think Jose Ferrer's got the great show stealing performance. I mean Bogart, Bogart obviously is chewing the scenery. Yeah. He's having his whole meltdown during the trial, but he's having that meltdown because Jose Ferrer is just picking the pieces with just logic and calm and just dismantling him. And of course Jose Ferrer is very ambivalent about that and feels has a lot of very mixed feelings about tearing down a guy who at one time devoted his life to the military, who was a hero, but who just kind of came unwound in that one moment. Right. And yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating drama. And it, you know, people who think, oh, it's a military movie, you're going to see a bunch of like battles at sea. It's not that at all. No, it's a little stiff I mean, it's in parts. I mean, it's based on a play. I mean, isn't it based on a play? Yeah. It I is think based on... There's some Based on the material. Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. novel by yeah, okay. Herman Wouck. Oh, yeah, oh, the Herman right. Wook yeah, novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's another one of these movies that they would never make. Are you again. falling asleep on us again? No, it's <laughs> another one of these movies. No, that's why I had to have that espresso. It's another one of these movies that they wouldn't make now, and yet might show up on like a Netflix or whatever with like a great cast. But you're just or an not HBO, gonna, like, you're not, yeah. yeah, or an HBO, like you're not going to see it in a theater, you know. But it's um, all, it's like a war movie. It's a courtroom movie, so it's like right. Uh, it's like the, you know, Few Good Men or something like that. If you're where, a bogey fan, and if yeah. you're not a bogey fan, what's wrong with you? But if you're a bogey fan, this is like up there with like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's very it's, Treasure of the Sierra yeah, It's Madre. up there. He has these weird dark performances, or like in a lonely place. Bogey has these performances yeah. where he just comes fucking Wait, unglued. I mean, I, like Treasure of Sierra no, Madre. No, I don't mean it's not nearly as good. I'm just saying. Those are really good movies. Those are mega movies. His famous performances. in terms of his performance. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Most people think, oh, Well, there's the other 50. Movie that I've never been able to get through with with Bogart and Peter Lorre and uh, oh uh, I know what you're talking about uh, Devil yeah um, yeah beat the Devil yeah beat yeah, the Devil is that 54 no it is not oh no. all right so it's, forget it it's, okay 53 is beat the Devil it's okay. like a bad Coen Brothers movie. yeah it, it's exactly I mean it's just like yeah. it's it's ridiculous all right, Houston well, sadly did not have a movie this year his next movie is Moby Dick in 56 which okay. is, is, you know it's like, pretty good yeah and has a I mean just a stunning Gregory Peck uh, well, he's up there with like James Mason as, uh, as right. Nemo that's right 
I, you know, I am a big Paul Newman fan. Paul Newman made exactly <laughs> one movie <laughs> under the age of 30, and it's Silver Chalice, which he made when he was 29, and he brought his method acting to this. Like, that's a you 54 know, movie? That's a 1954 movie. Brings his method acting to, um, you know, like a, 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 a studio Bible movie. But he's got a lot of TV this year, shitloads. Like right, this- but, he, but this is his... And anyway, he had such a bad experience... And hated it so much that he goes back to theater and doesn't come back to movies uh, for for like three or four years. So this is the only movie you can see Paul Newman in under the sexy. age of thirty because he's twenty nine. I mean, he kind of looked the same until he was like fifty, fifty five, yeah. and suddenly, like with like the verdict, he just aged overnight. Well, it's it's very it's an interesting movie because it's a dud. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, but he's good in it. And it has a fantastic score. It has literally like a score like the the movie doesn't deserve the score. And it has this really weird. I'm sure this was to save money, but there's this really, really crazy, um, almost like cabinet of Dr. Caligari like production design where there's just like virtually no like the backgrounds are just like. Almost just like you know, like like just these huge pieces of cardboard cut out, like but it but it's very stylized, um, and you know whatever, yeah. So it's like you know it's 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 in the it's like, you know right after Jesus died, and they're trying to promote Christianity, and so they want him to make actually a gold or a silver child. He's the best silversmith, and you know yada yada yada. But they want him to, you know, it has to do with the Holy Grail and all that. It's it's a mess, and uh, you know, but but it's got Jack Palance as like an evil wizard. I love him. Yeah, wow. I mean, literally, Jack Palance. Is he like, plays Simon the Magician. Yeah, I mean, and he's he's literally, and he, you know, it's great. I mean, it's you know, um, having watched a tremendous amount of these sort of Bible type movies or whatever, uh, you know, it's it's got some interesting elements to it. I think it's re- it's really for you know for Paul Newman fans or for you know Paul Newman completionists, Holy, yeah, Gra- yeah, Holy totally. Grail fans, Holy Grail completionists. Um, wait, who directed it? Are you guys looking at the Victor uh, Saville? Oh uh, yeah, so you know, I mean, this is not an this no. is not an A list, uh, but you know, they knew you know Paul Newman was a big deal. I mean, they he was groomed to be you know a a Montgomery Clift, a James Dean. J- All right, when does James Dean die? So we got. What do we have? Fifty four. Do we have? Is East of Eden any of these? No, no James Dean anywhere. Yeah, no James Dean because I guess Giant was his last. Now yeah. it was a couple years later. Yeah. Right, but, but East of Eden was fifty five. Yeah, Rebel Without a Cause was fifty five. Right, I was gonna say Nicholas Ray follows up Johnny Guitar with uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, with Rebel Without a Cause. I'll bring in another obscure movie that I mentioned at the beginning. It'll be me coming full circle on this on this pod. Uh, Pushover. Oh, bring it on, yeah. So I, I've not seen it. Okay, so Richard Quine was like one of these sort of B directors um, working and, and knocked out two movies in, in 1954. That and another one I mentioned earlier called Drive Drive a Crooked Road with Mickey Rooney. Pushover is a good one. It's it's kind of like a traditional noir with Fred McMurray, but it's um, Kib Novak's first movie, and she looks like really... Really hot. Va va voom. Yeah. And she's, you know, they're pulling out all the stops with her. And it's one of these, you know, classic noirs where he plays a cop and he gets kind of in too deep. He's on a stakeout and he's watching her. So it's got like sort of shades of rear window where he's like watching her through the window and we're watching that story unfold through his eyes. And meanwhile, he's getting corrupted over the course of it. Anyway, it's a good, tight, 
you know, B noir that's kind of right in that and those, wheelhouse. And they, they age so well. Yeah, so, totally. so many movies from this period don't necessarily age that well, but the film noir, man, from the, like the like early 40s to the late 50s, pretty much any film noir holds up pretty good. Especially the well. B movies, which well, aren't trying to be star vehicles. Right, so. because, and, and they're allowed to be nasty. They're nasty. Yeah. 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 And they usually work with great source material, great like Mickey Spillane novels or great like, uh, uh, you know, Raymond Chandler novels. Just the, the whole crime slash film noir thriller genre in the 40s and 50s was one of the few areas where you could kind of see post-World War II pessimism and things like that. Yep. It's just a really rich period. And like I said, Crime Wave, I'd seen clips from it in the Martin Scorsese documentary, Personal Journey Through American Filmmaking, many times. And so I, I was familiar already with the really juicy bits. But it's just guys like Andre de Toth and Joseph H. Lewis and all these kind of B directors, they'd make these hour 10, hour 15 minute movies that are just like getting like a one-two punch to the face and you're in and you're out. And they're so fucking cool. And God damn They were it. shot in, in three weeks. Yeah. Too. And I some of these movies... Um, I mean, suddenly falls into that yeah, category. Yeah, a little I mean, bit. Sud I mean, suddenly is Frank Sinatra's greatest performance, I think. More and than From Here to Eternity? I mean, and I know when he won, and he won. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, they're very different because he's the villain in this one, and he's such a uh, he's such a you know he not hero, but you know like whatever. I mean, like everybody loves you know whatever that that his name is in uh, in. Um and from here to eternity, you know. But he's also a great man with the golden arm and great yeah. Manchurian candidate. He's, he's got some good ones. He is. I, I agree. But this is something different because he's a psychopath. Uh, and, that... and Sterling Hayden is sort of taking him apart slowly, you know, like sort of like Jose Ferrer and... Uh... Sterling Hayden and also in Crime Wave. Yep. Yes. Yeah, awesome yeah. In, yeah. Also in Johnny Guitar. It's a good year for Sterling Hayden. It is. Yeah, he was. I mean, goddamn, certainly Hayden. I, I fucking love him to pieces. And like it, later, a few years later, like with the what year was the killing? A couple years later, but he just certainly Hayden man in the fifties. Fifty-eight, and then he disappears to like the Godfather and like Long Goodbye and stuff like that. And he has this like great little like end into the end of life renaissance. But man, early fifties, certainly Hayden was hitting home runs one when after another. When was uh, when was um, the you know the the John Houston the that's what jungle yeah fifty. That might be that's yeah. that might be my favorite of all the crime movies. It's a good one. It's a great heist. It's a movie. colossus. I mean, it's yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah, you got the baby face Marilyn Monroe. Oh, one yeah. of the greats. Uncle Lon. Yeah, it's one of the greats. <laughs> oh my god. Well, as we start winding things down toward our conclusion or finale. How many hours is this? Oh, it's about. Is anyone still with us? It's two and a half of audio. Any so listeners? I are you still with us? I will remove some stuff and add some clips, but. Man. In y'all's opinion. What are the other great years of cinema that, like, what are the other big bang? I mean, for me, the big ones that obviously jump out immediately are 39 and 2007. And a lot, of, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about 1999, mostly just because it's, it's the 20th anniversary. But I, a lot yeah, of, I, I think most of those 99 movies suck ass I agree. that people I, are talking about. There's no year. fucking yeah. way that Fight Club deserves to be on any kind <laughs> of list or The Matrix or I don't know. But like, I mean, I think we got to do. Yeah, 30, 33 is another one from the 30s. 33 and 39. Yeah, 33 is pre code. 48 might be. Be, we haven't be done one. a 40s. We've done 50s. We've done 70s, 80s, yeah. 90s. We haven't done 60s. We 60s are an interesting decade. I mean, like half the posters on my wall are from the 60s. I'm a big, I'm a big 60s yeah. guy. Yeah. I don't know, man. That 99, I, I've been reading articles, and they've yeah. been really making me mad. What's 2007? Because that's people... That's like uh, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and stuff like that. Those, those are... Yeah, 2007, I'm not I, on I, board. Give more, I give I'm more... I'm not on board I give that. more I gotcha. credence to that than 99. I, I, I mean, Are we, we too old we, we to look at 2007 honestly? Well, no, this is what I was going to say. I, 
it, we but you need, need to have been a teenager in 2007 to appreciate Well, that's what I think about 99. But I, we might need to wait a decade, and the best picture results aside, I think 2018 was actually a very good year for film, like modern-wise. I, I actually think 2018, there were, yeah, like, you know... I saw a lot of kick-ass flicks last year, no doubt. Yeah, my I, movie came out in twenty. Yeah, there exactly. you go. Exactly. Well, it was not enough, baby. No, like when we were recording, I was like, one day some like some nerdy it's hipsters will be doing a, a podcast um, talking about great documentaries, and World Is Not Enough is going to come out. The World up. Before Your Feet. God, what, wait, wait, what is the world's not enough? That's is a, that a, James a Bond, Bond movie. Yeah. That's a James Bond. God, that's, that's oh the, man. I've, now had one, I've had one glass of scotch <laughs> and I'm already drunk. <laughs> um, we're starting to reach that point. Yeah, we're, all right, well, we're, no, but you're right. I mean, we we, we we would like to come up with another year. So, and I, 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 why don't we ask listeners? Well, I thought that's what wait, this was. Wait, why thought, don't we ask listeners? But I have, I have a bad habit also of, of whenever I'm talking about Black Klansmen, calling it Black Panther, and people are just gonna shake their heads. I'm like, what? What I say? What I say? You said Black Panther. I'm like, I did. Why don't we? I uh, I did both come out in 2018. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I get it. Because when you look at lists, it's it's the same thing. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. Why don't we ask listeners what they want us to do? I, I, I like to uh, lead another the horse movie in by the seventies. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with I'm, I'm actually. I know because for me the sixties has the biggest appeal, but the th- I love the thirties, I love the sixties, I love the forties. Twenties is harder just because you get into like it's either undisputed masterpieces that are like the pillars of cinema or movies that nobody's ever seen. Like, you really get into strange, un- yeah, unusual territory sure. in the twenties, teens. Holy shit! I mean, it's like how many movies from the scenes, teens have you even seen? Sure, like, count them on two hands, perhaps, and things sure. like that. So no, I mean, my the biggest problem with like some of the sixty, like sixty seven or sixty six, would how close to seventy one are they? You, you know? start it starts to be yeah. a little bit of a retread in terms of certain themes, which is why I would lean toward like early sixties and like like Le Mepli, which is right behind y'all, the good old contemplate. Sixty four. 63? Man, we'll, we'll have to chew on it. Or maybe, if we want to go totally berserk, if y'all, assuming y'all have good enough internet connection, to a live stream. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, do, and, and do, do a total, complete change of pace and talk about, like, one movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> I so, can't do that. Yeah, because these, these episodes, they definitely are they're a challenge to prepare for. <laughs> they're also a challenge for your listeners. If anyone's still they're, with us, they're, they're a just challenge like, for, wow. for the editing. I, I, I agree. But and Chico Leo, they're a challenge but for I enjoyed, him to, to stay away. I, I enjoy the I was clips. thinking about Vera Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to go ahead and draw this to a close. So let's uh, let's stop with where uh, people can find your work because this, this is going to come out in a couple of weeks. So you've got a film, you got a podcast. Just for people who might have skipped the beginning, Jeremy, where can people find your film? Where can people find you on social media? Uh, they could find my film, The World Before Your Feet. The World Is Not Enough. Yep. Um, dot com. And they should watch it on iTunes or Amazon. And it's on DVD. It's going to be on Prime. And, um, you know, fun, interesting enough, I, I think I reached out to you both about this. I'm do, I was uh, fortunate enough to be invited to do a Criterion Top 10. Oh, very cool. So Excellent. I think that... Yeah, I think I'll, I recommended the silent Joseph von Stern. I, Schumber, I, I, blah, blah, I remember. I remember. Joseph von so uh, go to... I think the Criterion blog will have it up by the time this is out. This time next year. Yeah, yeah. Will we see an Oscar? Oh man! On your no. bookshelf? No, we will. Please. Who's your strongest, fierce, most fiercest competitor so I, far? I couldn't even. I don't. I'm not even in the ball game. I'm. Th- I'm. Wor- I'm thinking about my new film, which is 
called Lily Topples the World, and it's about is it, it the, the Domino one? Yep, it's about Lily Hevish, who's a 19 year old, um, uh, the world's greatest domino artist. Well, where can people find you on social media, Chico? And where can people expect to find your podcast? Um, I'm at the Chico Leo on Twitter, uh, where you can usually find me, especially in the middle of the night when I wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, and um, the podcast is called Sword and Scandal, and it's on uh, the Loudspeakers Network. And uh, by the time that you're hearing this, there will be a uh, Twitter. Uh, there'll be a Twitter page, and uh, you know, it'll there'll be a, you know at least one or two episodes up, possibly more. And uh, yeah, um, check it out. It, it's going to be good. And the, the uh, next time you have insomnia, I'm going to send you just one hour of unedited audio of me just talking about Vera Cruz, and you'll <laughs> sleep like a baby right. for the rest of your life. No, you guys were talking about Far Country, I think, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know. And and yeah, no, I just had I just had a moment of uh, you know <laughs> to so, collect yourself. Yeah, so everybody should go watch some movies from '54. Absolutely, so, it's a kick-ass year, yeah. and some of the best filmmakers who ever lived were all in their prime doing their thing. It kills me that there was no Howard Hawks movie to discuss, but he was kind of on a semi-hiatus. What about '48? Did I suggest that already? I That's feel a like good there's one. Some good years, good movies yeah. in '48. Well, we will put this under all these years under consideration. But for the time being, we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. Leave us a rating review on iTunes if you want to see some video content. Hunt down Geeking with James Hancock. Just crossed the fourteen thousand subscriber mark, so we're trying to push on ahead to always get those numbers higher. But I'm very excited, and what? else got coming up uh scotch is talking and so i can't quite remember so we're not going to worry about that right now but if you want to find me on twitter you can find me uh at colbrax but thanks again for listening but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and blow